Good evening. Welcome to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Welcome back. My name is Kyle Bird. I am your co-host, and I have my my co-host Matt Parmley. We got a pretty dense episode in front of us, so uh, we're going to cut right to the chase. Um, but it's so dense that we had to call in some friends to help us. Um, we have returning once again uh, Kevin Derendorf of Mazer Patrol and part-time Kaiju Transmissions uh, guest host. Welcome back, Kevin. Hello, hello. From what I understand, um, you uh, like gave blood and got all doped up with a bunch of shots and stuff today, so um, if you're silent for long periods of time, we'll just assume that uh, you uh, are either dead or you just passed out. Yeah, although if you don't hear anything for a period of seven years, you know, maybe look in North Korea. <laughs> yeah, Kim Jong-un might need a, a North Korean uh, cinema for hipsters book or something written. Hopefully... Uh, you don't have to eat like mud and rice. <laughs> maybe they, maybe they've changed their their ways. Um, and then uh, also returning is um, Justin Mullis, who we often uh, recruit when we have something steeped in some sort of uh, 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 mythology or folklore. Um, so welcome back, Justin. I don't know. I know your last time you you had like a couple things that you wanted to talk about uh, as far as where people can find you and things that you may want to plug. Is there anything that you want to mention? Uh, no, uh, not not really. Um, happy to be back, uh, Kyle. Um, this is going to be, I, I think, really interesting uh, to talk about. You know, diving into this area of, of Korean mythology and folklore um, this time rather than rather than Japanese. And as far as, um, my, my current work goes, like I said before, I mean, right now people can find me over at, uh, adventures in poor taste where I do, I have a regular kind of book review column and I also occasionally, uh, contribute articles. And then I just have my, um, regular, uh, academia edu page. And I should have some, I should have some other, uh, podcast appearances coming up uh, pretty soon, I'm I'm trying to make time to go do an episode of um, a podcast that's actually done out of Ireland called Wide Atlantic Weird. Um, I've been asked to come on there and talk about um, uh, fairies in Victorian horror fiction. So, um, but I've got to get that that set up with the the guy who does that show. So, all right. Well, people can keep their eyes open for that. So, um, this is. This might this might turn out to be one of the just most <laughs> the one of the densest episodes we've talked about because we got to talk about uh, the Korean myth, then we got to talk about Polgasari, the movie which has one of the craziest histories of any movie like ever, and then we got to talk about some other stuff like Galgameth. Which Justin, did you end up watching Galgameth? I did not um, 
rewatch Galgamesh. Ooh, you this. always I, you always weasel out of the the worst. I mean, I don't. I can't blame him. <laughs> I, frankly, the only but, reason we give him a pass is because he brings like because he 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 brings actual like research with him that is 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 very good information for us. If if it was Matt that tried to weasel out of Galgameth, nah, 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 never happened. I I have seen I have seen parts of Galgameth a long time ago. So, but I was not I I was not making time in my schedule to to rewatch Galgameth, especially not after all of the gifs you guys subjected to. Oh, you're a gif guy? Nah. Oh my gosh, kick him off the show right now. <laughs> oh, you're 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 getting away with murder tonight. Um, you know when when Matt Parmley is accusing you of mispronouncing things, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just... You're 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 firmly a GIF person, Matt. Of course. Yeah, we. I we don't say, care what the creator yeah, of the word says. We say GIF here. <laughs> um. So, uh, I guess to talk about this subject matter, we have to go all the way back to uh, a long ass time ago. Um, and talk about Bulgasari, which is the the Korean uh, folklore creature that this is supposedly <laughs> based on. Um, if people look at look at look for like drawings of the actual like mythological monster, they'll they will see something very different. But um, uh, Justin, I will hand the reins over to you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, I, I guess the folkloric aspect of this whole thing. Um, so much like with, uh, much like with Jiraiya, actually, Bird, um, it's not that far back, um, as we'll, as we'll see. So, uh, interestingly enough, but okay. So, um, Bolgasari or Polgasari, um, and you'll see this spelling either way. And I've been told, uh, that this is because B and P um, are very similar in the way that you pronounce them in Korean. So you can translate it either way. Uh, it doesn't really matter. seems to be that when you're talking about the uh, legendary monster, it's usually Bulgasari. And when we're talking about the film, it's usually Polgasari. And I think that's a fine sort of distinction there. Um, and I should also mention uh, just at the outset, so Korean mythology and history, not a subject I usually... Um, deal with. And so uh, I want to apologize in advance for my Korean pronunciation. I did go talk to a professor of mine today who is uh, Korean American, and she gave me a lot of pointers on uh, proper Korean pronunciation. So I'm going to try to do justice here. Too bad she um, couldn't talk to you about gift pronunciation. (laughs) But yes, go on. Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So the story of um, Bulgasari is, interestingly enough, deeply bound up in uh, the, the country of Korea's religious history, um, which uh, suits me just fine since my background is in religious studies. Um, but that does mean that there's going to be a, a little bit of uh, history that we have to lay down as groundwork before we can actually start talking about these legends, if we hope to have them make any sense of, of what's going on in them. Okay, so... The people of the Korean Peninsula originally practiced a form of female-led shamanism known as Muism. Um, But in the first half of the first millennium CE, 
uh, Buddhist monks made their way across Central Asia and through China and into Korea and brought the religion of Buddhism with them. Uh, so there are generally two major schools of Buddhism, uh, Mahayana Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism. These monks uh, going into Korea brought Mahayana Buddhism with them. And the difference here is that Mahayana Buddhism uh, tends to put a greater emphasis on the idea that we live in a universe that's populated by all kinds of supernatural entities. So there's various gods and spirits and demons and uh, bodhisattvas, which are sort of like saints, right? And this, this actually, this idea jived really well with the traditional um, Muism of Korea, right? And so the new religion of Buddhism and the traditional kind of shamanism uh, got on just, just fine with each other. And so then in um, 668 CE, um, the Shila dynasty unifies Korea and uh, for the first time, and they make Mahayana Buddhism the official religion of the peninsula. Now, eventually the Shila dynasty will fall and it will be replaced by the Koryo kingdom, um, which will uh, uh, last from 918 up until 1397, I'm sorry, 1392 CE. Um, and the capital um, in the uh, Koryo kingdom is going to be Songdo, um, and that's important, just bear that in mind. Um, uh, Koryo uh, will maintain Buddhism as the official religion. Um, and as a result, this period in Korean history will become known as the golden age of Buddhism in Korea. Buddhism is just going to flourish. It's going to gain a lot of influence, a lot of power in Korean culture, in Korean politics. Now, in the 13th century, the Mongol Yuan dynasty invades Korea um, and transforms um, Koryo into a semi-autonomous vassal state. And as a result, a lot of subsequent Korean, and I'm doing air quotes here for the radio, um, a lot of the subsequent Korean emperors um, will actually be ethnically Mongolian. And that's also important. So remember that. Um, following the overthrow of the Goryeo monarchy, um, you have the Choson dynasty, which lasts from 1392 all the way up until 1897. And so it's the last of the Korean dynasties. Um, a lot of Korean period fiction that listeners are likely to be fans of or familiar with take place during the Choshan dynasty. Um, so this would include things like if anybody watches the Netflix series Kingdom, right, the sort of zombie show, or if you've seen the 2018 movie Monstrum, which is on uh, Shudder, uh, both of those take place at different points in the uh, Choshan dynasty. Um, so I don't know if you guys are planning to cover Monstrum at some point, but it's really good. Um, so it's during the uh, Choshan period in the 14th century that the state religion of Korea also switches from Buddhism to Confucianism, which is also imported from China. Now, Confucianism has always been a really complicated subject for religious studies scholars because in many ways it cuts against the grain of even the most liberal definitions of what a religion is. And one of the ways Confucianism does this is by being decidedly anti-supernatural. Confucianism is concerned principally with ethics and social hierarchy, which is why it's always been a really popular um, system with governments, right? To be a good Confucian is to be someone who respects authority almost without question, right? Um, but Confucius himself is said to have dismissed his students' questions about the reality of the supernatural as being uh, ultimately irrelevant. <clears throat> 
And so this is actually a big reason why uh, countries that have been heavily influenced by Confucianism, uh, like China, for example, have this uh, real love-hate relationship today with movies about ghosts and black magic and stuff. Um, oftentimes in the Western media, whenever this issue comes up, like a few years ago, for example, when uh, like Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak didn't get released in China because of the ghost stuff in it, right? You'll see a lot of stories in the Western media saying yeah. this has to do... Whenever there's a Ghostbusters like, movie. Ghostbusters movie. Yeah, right. Or when certain uh, Hong Kong movies get remade in mainland China, like um, a Chinese ghost story, for example, they'll take the ghost elements out or they'll replace it with something else. Like they'll make the ghosts um, uh, huling jing, right, the, the shape-shifting foxes or something. Um, and and usually uh, the Western media always says this has something to do with sort of uh, Chinese communism, right, or like Maoism. Uh, and there's certainly some truth to that, but this idea of censoring the supernatural in China is much, much older, and it goes all the way back, in fact, to like the Qing Dynasty, which was from 1636 to 1912, and it goes back to this sort of Confucianist thing, right? In fact, uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but I just I always like to mention this. One of the only reasons that we have as much Chinese folklore as we do is because during the Qing Dynasty. Um, the Confucian, the Confucianist uh, bureaucrats who were in charge actually ordered librarians to go through and purge all the libraries of any books that had to do with the supernatural. And some of these guys, fortunately, uh, didn't listen to the orders that they were given, and they um, would take this stuff and copy it down and hide it, and it was preserved that way. And so one of the best examples of this is a book by a, a Chinese scholar named Yu Mei, and um, there's an official English translation of his book, which is called Censored by Confucius, which is a, a great title, but I actually love what the more literal translation of the Chinese title would be, which is that of which the master would not speak, and the master here being Confucius. Anyway, to get back to Korea, um, you have sort of the same thing going on, right? Once the Confucianists take over uh, and become the official religion, um, you have uh, at first, you know, they, they don't immediately crack down on the uh, Muism practitioners and the Buddhists. At first, there's just kind of this thing where they're sort of, you know, publicly kind of castigating them and, uh, you know, sort of uh, ridiculing them. But later it does move into full on actual government persecution, right? You have temples being shut down. You have mass arrests of Buddhist monks for no reason other than just the fact that they're Buddhists, right? And, and so it's all of this information that uh, is our backdrop for when we actually get to the legend of Bulgasari. Um, so, uh, now what's interesting is that Bulgasari as a monster seems to have existed in Korean art for a long time before it was ever part of the written record. Um, according to Sebastian Berg's book, Korean mythology, folklore, and legend from the Korean peninsula, uh, traditional depictions of the Bulgasari show a creature with quote, the body of a bear covered with needles, the heads of an elephant, the eyes of a rhino, the claws of a tiger, and the tail of a bull, end quote. Um, so it somewhat resembles the Japanese yokai baku, um, but it's basically like a monstrous elephant. That's that's typically what you'll see in, um, in these depictions. And usually we find drawings of Bulgasari either painted on folding screens 
or as bas-reliefs sculpted onto chimneys. And this seems to have been, the, the chimney thing in particular, seems to have been because there was a popular folk belief that images of the Bolgasari um, possessed what are known as apropotraic properties, meaning that they ward off evil. And in this case, if you had an image of a Bolgasari on your home's chimney, it would protect it against um, fire. Right. So, you, you know, a fire breaking out in your house and burning your house down. So, again, kind of similar also to the Japanese yokai Amabe, who people might be familiar with. Um, Amabe is a sort of mermaid yokai that's become very popular in recent years because its image is supposed to protect you from disease like COVID. Now, what's interesting here is the earliest written version of the Bulgasari story that we have um, and I, I consulted several English language and Korean language sources for this. Um, and, and so if somebody knows of an older version of this, please let me know. But based on all of my research, it would appear that we don't actually have a version of a story associated with this monster written down until uh, the year 1855. So that is the middle of the 19th century, the Victorian era over here in the West. Um, this is a story, this would make this story younger than the Jiraiya story that we talked about last time I was on, which was from the early 1800s. But it comes from a encyclopedia, actually, uh, written by a Korean author named um, Cho Jae-hoon, and, um, and it's called uh, Song Nam's Encyclopedia. And so it simply records, and I'm just going to read the quote here at one point, quote, in the final years of Song Do, there lived a monster that ate up all the metal scraps, and people tried to kill it, but could not succeed, and thus named the monster Bolgasare, which means impossible to kill. Even when it was thrown into fire, it flew back to the village, its whole body aflame, and burned down all the houses. End quote. And uh, Songdo, if you remember, is the uh, capital of um, uh, Koryo. Uh, right, that that second unified um, Korean uh, dynasty, right? So it's basically saying in the final years of the Koryo kingdom, right before Songdo fell, there was this monster that ate metal and and was hard to kill, and uh, would, you know the villagers tried to burn it, and it uh, ended up burning down their village. Now, um, according to the online encyclopedia of Korean folk cultures, uh, they give a slightly more elaborate version of this story. Now, they don't give a source for where they're getting this more elaborate um, version of the story, but I, I tend to think the encyclopedia of Korean folk culture seems like a pretty reliable site. So if this was just something that was on Wikipedia or whatever, I wouldn't bother repeating it. Um, but they give a slightly more elaborate version of the story. And so this is what they say, and I've, I've only made very minor annotations to this for clarity. So they write, quote, One day, the Confucian government issued an order to arrest all Buddhist monks who fled their temples and were on the run. One of the monks went to his sister's home and asked for shelter. The sister offered to hide him in a closet, but suggested to her husband to report her brother to the authorities in exchange for riches. The husband, enraged by his wife's scheme to sell off her own brother, killed her and set the monk free. The monk, while he was locked inside the closet, had made a grotesque beast-shaped object out of steamed rice grain and fed it needles. Surprisingly, 
the monster kept eating more needles and kept growing. And when there was nothing left to eat in the house, it came outside and ate up any kind of metal scrap, growing bigger and bigger. In an attempt to catch this monster, the government assembled people to shoot it with arrows or slay it with swords, but all failed. Finally, they tried to melt the monster with fire, but the monster went all around the village, its body set on fire and setting fire to everything. In some variations, the monster is killed by an eminent monk. In other versions, the monster is eradicated after it is lured out using a scrap of metal, its tail set on fire using flint, which turns the monster into charred rice accompanied by a tremendous noise, end quote. Uh, this version of the story um, clearly seems to be didactic in nature. Um, it's designed to paint the Buddhists as uh, being a, a persecuted group uh, with the by the Confucians. Um, the Buddhists are also portrayed as being supernaturally powerful, right? They're the ones who make the monster, and at least in that one version, they're also the ones who put the monster down. Um, so this story kind of reminds me a lot of the Jewish legends of the golem, right, where the Jews are being persecuted by Christians in Europe, and you have a particular rabbi who makes a golem, a monster out of inert matter, brings it to life, uses it to exact revenge, it gets out of control, has to be put down by an equally powerful um, rabbi, right? Alternatively, also think about Daimajin. Um, however, what's interesting is that there seems to also be another version of this story which flips the script and tells it from the Confucian point of view. Uh, and so in this version of the story, we're told that the reason for the mass arresting of Buddhist monks is related to the promiscuous acts of a historical Buddhist named Sindon. Uh, who lived from 1322 to 1371. And from what I was able to ascertain, this guy was sort of like a Korean version of Grigory Rasputin, right? The famous Russian mystic who influenced the Romanovs, right? So Sindon was a teacher and advisor to Kong Min of Koryo, who was the 31st ruler of Koryo from 1351 to 1374. And Kong Min was not Korean, but rather one of those Mongolian emperors who took over during the time when Korea was a vassal state under the Mongol dynasty. Uh, now, like Rasputin, uh, Sindon had a scandalous reputation for sexual promiscuity, and there were rumors that he had taken advantage of many women and fathered many children. Uh, according to one Korean website I consulted dedicated to Minhwa, or Korean folk art, they had a, a very nice uh, gallery of all kinds of different traditional images of the Bulgasari. Um, according to this website, they said that the, the full legend about Sindon was that he had visited a fortune teller who had told him that he would be the recipient of great riches if he could give birth to 100 sons. As a result, Sindon began to demand that every Buddhist nun have sex with him. He managed to impregnate 99 of them, but there was one who refused. Uh, Sindon grew angry at this nun. He tries to rape her, um, but she flees. Uh, to her brother's home and initiates a version of the drama previously outlined, right? Her brother gives her shelter, but then tries to, um, you know, double cross her. It's uh, his wife, the, the nun's sister-in-law, who's like, no, how dare you, right? And the nun's the one who makes the monster that then goes out and gets revenge, et cetera, et cetera, already told this story. And so this is like I said, an equally didactic version, but it flips things around. The Buddhists are the ones who are made to look terrible, as well as um, 
the uh, Muzim practitioners, the traditional shamans, because I'm, I'm assuming that that's what that fortune teller is supposed to be. Um, so what you can, can see from these different versions uh, is that the story of Bulgasari has always been extremely political, um, at least from its, its exception, inception in the mid-1800s, uh, right? It's always been used to kind of uh, talk um, uh, badly about one group or the other, right? Whether it's Buddhists or Confucianists or who have you, right? Whether it's the uh, Mongolian uh, sort of puppet emperors or whether it is uh, the uh, Confucian bureaucrats or who have you. But that is, um, in, in short, uh, all the information I was able to dig up on, uh, on the legend of Bulgasari. Well, that's all interesting stuff. And I, I think throughout you know, the different uh, versions of the story that we've seen, you can definitely uh, find some, some traces of that. Um, and uh, there are several uh, versions of the story that, or I guess adaptations, I don't know if that's what you want to call it, um, that, that have been made. Um, the first, to my knowledge, is 1962's Bulgasari, which is a South Korean movie um, that, uh, according to the internet, uh, the plot synopsis is um, it is about a guy who, a skilled martial artist who is who was murdered by traitors during the Goryeo dynasty. I don't know what that... I mean, I, I, I'm assuming it's a Korean dynasty. I don't know much more about it. And uh, the martial artist is resurrected as the iron-eating monster Bulgasari to seek vengeance. Um, oh, Kyle. Yeah. That dynasty, that's the Koryo dynasty that I talked about. Oh, okay, okay. Same, yeah, so, same thing, okay. Yeah. Um, that movie is Lost... Um, supposedly it, uh, wasn't very well liked when it came out in December of 1962 in South Korea. Um, that being said, I don't know why it's lost, um, other than, you know, just tons of South Korean movies, um, you know, from this era are, are lost. We we talked about that when we talked about uh, Yongari recently. Um, I don't know. There's some images you can uh, look at online. Um, there's a couple stills. There's a poster uh, for the movie. But uh, yeah, I, I would say chances of uh, any of us seeing it are probably slim to none. Um, I don't know. It might be sitting in a vault somewhere. Uh, I don't know. It could be in someone's basement. Who knows? But uh, it, chances are it's lost along with, you know, whatever. I forget what the astronomical percentage of lost Korean movies from the, from that time period is. Um, and I, I think someone, I don't know, one of the toy companies, I think, made a toy of it uh, not, uh, not that long ago. But I don't know. It's it's a it's a weird looking version of uh, it, it. It looks like a weird like uh, person. Like it's a humanoid looking like human like uh, monster. I I don't know. 
I, I think it's probably a fair point to go ahead and mention, you know, I, and I have no idea what the reason for this is, but almost all of these uh, film or television versions of uh, Bulgasari or Polgasari that we're going to talk about um, do not resemble the, the depictions that you see in, yeah. in traditional Korean folk art. I mean, the one from the, uh, the Kim Jong-il film that we're going to talk about probably comes the closest just because of the fact that it's at least rather animal-like, right? I mean, you can see a lot of bull in there, right? Which is part of those traditional descriptions. Um, But yeah, both the one from the posters from this film and the the television version that we're going to get to have like this weird humanoid look to yeah. them. So yeah. I don't know what's well, up with that. To, to complicate, complicate things further, uh, as far as I understand, uh, Pugasari is the Korean word for starfish, um, <laughs> which I guess is also kind of an immortal animal, depending on how you kind of think about it. Maybe that's the rationale. Um, My understanding is that's supposed to be the deal there with the, the starfish thing. Um, is that yeah? It's it's it, they gave it that name because starfish are also supposed to be notoriously right hard to kill because of the diffused nervous system that they have, or however that works. Mm-hmm. But I mean, to I mean, it's it's funny to me because that's also the probably because of that, uh, or perhaps it's due to the the raffinous appetite. That's that's the Korean title for the Tremors franchise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did not know that. That's all pretty crazy stuff. Um, I I do know when I was talking to the my uh, my professor this morning, going over the pronunciation thing, and she was asking me what this movie was that we were talking about, and I was like, Bulgasari. She was like, "It's a starfish." What? And I was like, <laughs> "No, no." But okay. <laughs> um. So I guess, you know, really quick, we can mention um, the 1981 television version, uh, which is a little, it's, it's a, a, a skit or a segment uh, from a television show that I'm, I'm imagining the program itself was longer, um, called Once Upon a Time, which uh, I think it was a, a children's show. Um, I'm not exactly, I'm, I'm assuming by the title that, um, you know, each, each episode or each segment was like a different fairy tale or something, but, uh, that's uh, my understanding yeah. is that each, each episode was a different, like, um, yeah, it was called once upon a time. Um, each segment was a different Korean folk tale or fairy tale retold. I mean, they, I think they make that pretty clear from the theme song at the beginning of this episode where they're like, let's hear a story from long ago, the kind that grandma and grandpa used to tell. And then they mention a couple of uh, sort of unique figures from Korean folklore, such as the talking fox, which I think everybody is familiar mm. with. And then the other one that the first time I saw this delighted me to know in, cause I was not aware of this is the, uh, the smoking the sm- tiger. Sm- yeah. Smoking tiger. But that's, that's apparently a, a big thing. And again, you can, look up lots of pictures on Google of um, pictures of uh, Korean folk art that depict tigers with uh, pipes smoking. So, and they're usually cross-eyed for some reason. So, <laughs> um, so this was a show that was done uh, with all puppets. Um, I, I guess uh, sort of marionette style puppets. Um, 
And uh, as we mentioned, the the version of Polgasari in this is, um, again, a very strange deviation from the traditional depiction. Um, so so the, the human characters are, are puppets, and then um, the monster is actually a guy in a suit. But it's this, again, it's this weird humanoid thing. It looks like, you know what it looks like? It looks like... Uh, the toad from the magic serpent walking upright, but he also is like, has a meth problem. (laughs) 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 It's a really bizarre looking monster and it has these really giant eyes and, um, I mean, uh, (laughs) it's sort of, it sort of looks, um, I mean, I kept thinking when I was rewatching that this, this afternoon that it, it almost kind of looks like Grimace from, you know, like McDonald's or something. Yeah, yeah. Only um, with like uh, car headlights for eyes, and then, you know, its whole body is like metal, like metal studs. So it's like I don't know. It's like like S and M bondage Grimace. Or yeah, something. Cenobite Grimace. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and um, this it, it, the, it, it's about thirteen minutes. Um, it was on YouTube. I'm not. I'm not sure if it's still there, but I don't know. If anyone needs help tracking it down, you know, we're we're believers in spreading spreading uh, spreading the goods here. So you know, let one of us know. But uh, um, so this kind of abridged version is uh, uh, a little strange. It's not quite like the stories that Justin just told us. Um, from what I can, from what I gather, this version is more. Um, uh, a girl kind of creates him and uh, is trying to and, and fed him a needle and then he like liked it so he started destroying the village um, trying to find more metal to eat and um, eventually the only way that the girl can stop him is if she kills herself for some reason but unlike the movies that we're going to talk about you know, in, in Polgasari, the end of Polgasari, like in this, when the girl dies, like he just like picks her up and like walks away (laughs) and it just says, you know, he was never seen again. And it said, uh, uh, it became a metaphor for someone who, uh, could do bad deeds that no one else could touch. I don't know if the subtitle I saw is just messed up, but, um, I don't know if there's any uh, it, anything. Uh, I don't know. Is there any thoughts on this version <laughs> that anyone has? The the only thing that I noticed watching it again this afternoon is I I rewatched the Once Upon a Time uh, short and then I I watched the '85 Bulgasari, and the only two things that sort of stood out to me was um, you know there, there's a sort of visual similarity there and the girl. Um, you know, stabbing herself to try to stop Polgasari. And in the 85 film, you sort of get a similar image that's reversed where the girl goes out after Polgasari has been, you know, temporarily defeated by the villains and he's buried under those rocks. And she, you know, basically slits open her arm to revive him uh, with her blood. So I, I thought there was an interesting visual connection there. And then um, there's the whole segment where in the 85 film 
because Polgasari is is a sort of demon um, in a way. Uh, you know, they try to they try to exercise him at one point, and they get one of those traditional uh, you know Muism uh, shamans, uh, female shamans, to do it. And there seems to be something kind of like that also going on in the Once Upon a Time um, short because there's this this segment. You know, a, a lot of a lot of this um, short. You know, everything seems to be happening in media res, um, and then they kind of explain it after the fact. And so in the, this short, there's this scene where you know they cut to this one woman puppet which if you don't know what you're looking at i mean i recognize that she's supposed to be a you know a traditional korean shaman but you know it, she just seems to just be like some some person who's randomly just like head, head banging in her house you know <laughs> just like rocking out for like a couple of, of minutes there and then of course they cut to you know Polgasari or Bolgasari showing up and, and trying to to get her and then they cut back to the the family of the girl who made the monster and they're like oh no he's going after the shaman now or or whatever but you know she's clearly doing some sort of ecstatic dance and in the subtitles you can see she's like calling on the gods and stuff and so it seems to be a similar sort of thing there where maybe she's trying to exercise the monster and i guess you know they're obviously this is a show made for children in korea they, they're assuming that you're probably you know at least on some level familiar with all of this so yeah <clears throat> um matt kevin did you watch this uh this version yeah, I've, I've seen it before, but uh, I actually this was my first time watching it with subtitles, so that was kind of nice. Um, uh, you know me, I, I have a, a real soft spot for glove puppetry, especially if that's mixed with uh, people in, in monster costumes in a different scale than the glove puppets depicting humans. So uh, that in, in combined with the kind of short time frame of it... Uh, even though it's technically not fantastic, I was maybe more charmed by it than I was by either one of the movies we watched. <laughs> I wouldn't disagree there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I uh, I don't have anything great to say about it, like maybe Justin does, but I, I did get a kick out of watching the the guy in the suit stomp the puppets a little bit. That was that was funny. I got I got a I got some kicks out of it. There's Worth one that out. he like kills the like the sh- <laughs> like kills the shit out of the one guy <laughs> like breaks breaks whoever the puppet like breaks somebody's hand underneath or however they were can like it's just yeah apparently this was the last episode of that show so like grand finale i guess huh interesting um and i i i'll mention this just as a footnote cuz i really don't have much to say or much information on it um but there was an episode of i believe it was a korean anime from 2012 called taoist i'm gonna i don't i'm gonna mess up this word uh taoist meotial maybe that i don't know what that translates into taoist metal maybe um it's m-e-o-t-e-o-l um where they uh I, from the looks of it, it's like a period set animated series. Um, but there was an episode where they had to fight off a, a Bulgasari. Does anyone know what the hell I'm talking about? There have been so many like Korean like webtoons, especially uh, that have elements of of 
that kind of mythology in it. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's kind of kind of like yokai anthology type of things are pretty common. Um, and uh, I know Korean animation has taken off, but it's not really like getting the exposure uh, that like Japanese animation does. So I don't know specifically what title you're talking about, but I kind of have some, <laughs> okay. have some um, ideas. I've I've seen um, I haven't seen any of this this show, but I'm aware of what you're talking about. Yeah, um, Kyle, I have it in my notes that it's, yeah. it's a thing that exists, and I've seen um, screenshots from it. I, I seem to recall that the Bulgasari that was in that almost looked kind of like a big pink hippopotamus or something. Yeah, or or a so, bear kind of like it. Yeah, it, uh, once again, something that looks nothing like. I, anything that we've talked about <laughs> so far. J- Justin, um, have you by any chance seen the uh, Shigeru Mizuki version? Of? Of a Bulgasari? No. I, I, I didn't just, know that I existed. I found either. reference to it existing in a wiki, and I haven't had the time to actually like look for it. Is so, that a, in a comic form, animation? What? what, what? I, it, would, it would probably be in, in a comic form. Uh, you know, yeah, he, he I mean... Kitaro and, and right, right, stuff like that. Yeah, no, I mean that would, I mean, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he had he had done that at some point. You know, I mean, Mizuzuke branched out into all kinds of you know world mythology and yeah, pop culture and everything. But um, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know there's there's also the 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 Bulgasari Immortal Shows uh, Immortal Souls thing that's on uh, Netflix. Yeah, which, which I, is like a weird monsterless version, the Netflix series. I don't know. I haven't watched it. Just, I didn't even know it existed until Justin was like, hey, you know, this is a thing. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, I I haven't had a chance to look at it either. Um, you know, it, it almost seems like they're trying to, the little bit that I read about it online, it sounds like they might be trying to reinterpret um, Bulgasari almost as a kind of like vampire sort of thing. I don't know. I, like I said, I haven't actually watched it. I read a little bit about it, um, online. It, it might be similar. It feels like it might be trying to bank on the popularity of kingdom, um, Mm. a little bit, which of course, you know, I, I mentioned earlier and I, I gave the sort of standard Western shorthand, which is, you know, that it's, they're zombies. But in fact, you know, if you've watched kingdom, um, you know, they, it, they're what they actually are is they're the Korean version of like the Chinese um, Zheng She, right? Or the Chinese vampires, as they're sometimes uh, called. But they've they've sort of uh, you know walking deaded them up a little bit, you know. So they they look more like um, Hollywood zombies, but they still behave according to some of the rules of you know Zheng She, in that like they're only active at night. They can't move around during the day and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, but the, uh, yeah, I, I, they might be trying to do something similar here, you know, um, uh, you know, again, there's, and, and, you know, I, I could see how you could go in that, that direction because as we'll talk about when we get into like the 85 film, you know, there's this whole element of like Polgasari being brought to life with blood initially, which is because, you know, blood has iron in it. So, you know, could definitely you know play that up um so the netflix show um is called bulgasol uh which sounds more like a cleaning product 
<laughs> something. Uh, Bulgasol Immortal Souls. And uh, um, it, uh, the plot synopsis on IMDb says it is the story of a man turned immortal, Bulgasol, who wants revenge from a woman with a mysterious past and present who he deems responsible for his immortality and miseries from the past 600 years, hoping to free himself from his curse. So yeah, it does sound like almost vampire-esque. Um, he eats the iron in their blood or something. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, it, it is, it, it, but uh, yeah, if, I, from that, that description, um, it says uh, he feels that there's a woman that's responsible for him turning into this thing. So um, I, that's probably something that... Uh, um, is you could say is maybe similar to, I guess uh, you know the girl uh, and the farmer having this connection to to Polgasari. Um, but I mean, uh, it might be one of those, you know, just kind of taking the immortality, like like with with Yongari. I think it's it's literally just like okay, let's take these two monsters and mash their names together because that's what Godzilla did, right? Yeah. So. Um. <clears throat> so, another history lesson, people. So, uh, you know, gather around, uh, crisscross applesauce. So, uh, 1985's Polgasari comes with uh, a lot of baggage, to say the least. Um, as some people may or may not know, <laughs> um, the director, um, of this movie, Shin Sang-ok, was kidnapped, uh, by Kim Jong-il, yes, the Kim Jong-il, and, uh, made to make a bunch of movies in North Korea. Um, they also kidnapped his ex-wife actress, um, and, uh, I guess, uh, I will do my best to tell an abridged version of that story. Um, and uh, this is when we get to a lot of just insanity. Um, uh, I, I will do my best to tell the Cliff Notes version, um, but if there... I mean, this is this is... There's so much to this that, like, there could be a whole podcast just about this situation. Um, the Atrocity Guy just put out a fantastic, like, one-hour mini-doc. On YouTube, right? Yep. Yeah, it's been covered on The Daily Show. It's been covered on John Oliver. It's There's the book, a Kim Jong-il production. There's the documentary, The Lovers and the Despot. Like, it's... If you want to dive into Massacre it... Massacre did an episode about it last Halloween, so... yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot of information about this. So, you know, I'm not going to get too detailed. I mean, this is probably going to be a long segment of this show because just the stuff that you do need to know is a lot. But um, I'm, I'm going to do my best not to get too into the minutia here. Um, so, yeah, I, I think if you want to know more, there's plenty of resources. Um, I haven't watched the one hour atrocity guide, uh, video on YouTube that Kevin just mentioned, but, uh, you know, I trust his judgment in saying it's excellent. Um, 
the book, uh, a Kim Jong-il production um, by Paul Fisher is probably the best that you're going to get as far as um, a definitive kind of history of this. Um, and if you want really just kind of the gist of it, the documentary, The Lovers and the Despot, is um, it's on a lot of streaming services. Like, it's easy to find. Um, in my opinion, it's not the best documentary just as a film. You know, it, it's not it's not the best movie. <laughs> you know, it's not the best documentary that um, you'll see. But if you want really just a nuts and bolts version of this uh, of this story, um, I will do my best to kind of give the point A to B to Z account of this story. Kevin and Justin, if there's anything that I am skipping over that you feel like is important, um, let me know. I may defer to, to, to you guys at s some point as well. And um, uh, chime in if, uh, if there's something that, that you want to add. So uh, we kind of gave a really, really simplified history of South Korean film in our uh, Yongari episode. So I'm going to kind of start um, with really kind of some basic information about North Korean cinema. So, I mean, as we all know, um, after the Korean War, Korea was split into North and South Korea. Um, North Korea, uh, I mean, anyone that's listening to this should know a little bit about North Korea. You know, they're very isolated. You know, they don't let in many visitors. Um, you know, I, they and of course, right, you know, they live under a dictatorship from, uh, well, right now it's Kim Jong-un. Before that, it was uh, Kim Jong-il. And before that, it was, uh, uh, what, Kim, uh, Kim Il-sung? Yeah. Okay. Um, and yes, you know, uh, all related. Uh, so Sung's grandson is the one in power now, and his father was Kim Jong-il, who we'll be talking about a lot. Um, so, uh, yeah, North Korea is a very strange place, um, you know, uh, and people are really conditioned to basically think that this, you know, family that runs the country are like, I, I don't know, it's, if I say God, it sounds, um, ex maybe, maybe like I'm, uh, exaggerating, but very, very, very close, um, to where, uh, I think when, uh, Song died, if, if you were, you, 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 like, needed to, if you weren't grieving what, properly in public, like, you could be, like, jailed or something, like, it, it, it's crazy. Um, so, because of, uh, uh, North Korea being itself, um, a lot of that uh, is kind of how they... I mean, that's kind of how they run everything there. Their film industry is, is very similar. Um, not many North Korean films are seen outside of North Korea. Um, I don't believe that they show many films from outside of North Korea either. And um, they don't make a whole lot of them either. And the films that they do make are lar largely propaganda-based. Um, uh, 
but in uh, in nineteen as of nineteen ninety eight, um, there there were two hundred and fifty nine Korean North Korean movies listed in official pamphlets. Although that uh, did not mention some movies like Polgasari, um, which supposedly was I don't know why really. Um, uh, the um, essay that Justin sent me said that outlawed, quote-unquote, outlawed movies like Polgasari were not mentioned in that pamphlet. Um, do, I, does anyone know the status of Polgasari in North Korea or why it would be outlawed or if that's... Uh, I think all of Shin's movies were, were banned after he... After he know, left, that would after- make- yeah, not not immediately after he left, but when he kind of started his media tour, because you know Pulgasari got a wide release in Korea. He was taken out of the credits. Yeah, they took it. Yeah, they they credited his assi- the assistant director as the as the director after he left, right? Yeah, which is funny because no North Korean movies had credits before he, he was <laughs> on board. Um. Uh. So. Um, I know the only release that got here in the United States with that was the ADV video VHS, which said, "What did it say? Banned in the United States?" It said something? banned for a decade. So it's it's unclear, you know, if, if they're weaseling and saying, "Okay, it was banned in in Korea or banned in the other Korea or banned in the U.S." or, or quite so it just what. says, "Okay, well, I guess if it just says banned." That know. was always kind of the joke about it. It's like I have a copy of that VHS tape still in the plastic, and it's just, but it's always just been like, you know, it just says banned for a decade, and it's like by who, <laughs> where, right? Um, so, uh, but to give an example, um, the 1980s were when Korean cinema was North Korean cinema was considered at its peak. Um, and in the 1980s, they averaged about 15 to 20 movies per year. So, very different from uh, the cinematic output from, from most countries. Um, and yes, uh, the Kims um, are involved in the film production. They, uh, they have historically been involved in you know, the messaging in the movies and and things like that, except for maybe this era and a little bit after where they they kind of were a little more hands-off, but we'll get into that. Um, North Korea has a few different film studios. Um, Feature films are made at Korean Film Studio, um, which is the main studio. Then there's also the film studio of the Korean People's Army. Um, There's the Children's Film Studio, which makes um, kids' movies, animated films, um, and then they have a documentary studio. Um, the only one that really sees um, any profit outside of North Korea is the um, uh, the one that does the animated films and the, the children's film studio um, because um, they're in demand for basically cheap, cheap work. Um, uh, it, countries like um, Spain, Italy, France... Uh, we'll go to them. Um, uh, but North Korean zone productions um, fare a little bit not not as great when they, when they do screen other places. Um, and uh, so uh, when uh, 
Sung is in power. Um, he delegates a lot of, I don't know if you want to say secondary tasks and things to his son, who is Kim Jong-il, who, you know, he is not in power yet because Sung is still alive at this point. Um, and it just turns out he is a big nerd, a uh, big movie nerd. Um, in his mansion, he had a whole, basically his own movie theater. He owned hundreds to thousands of films, um, you know, would watch movies every day. Um, certain, and, and he, and he, he liked movies from America as well. You know, he was watching, um, he loved James Bond movies, um, to the degree that he may have gotten some strange ideas that (laughs) we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and, uh, uh, Friday the 13th franchise, he was supposedly a big fan. Um, the Godfather, uh, I mean, a lot of stuff. Um, I feel like he'd really like Black Panther. (laughs) He would probably, like, watch the beginning of Black Panther and be like, this Wakanda country, they, they understand, you know, just... Be you know they got it right being completely sealed off and then by the end he'd be like I don't know why what they're doing, um, <laughs> uh so yeah Kim Jong Il uh the big nerd um I have heard it said that he was a fan of Godzilla and kaiju films I don't know that he was getting those from Japan I don't I'm not sure how true that really is but I do know that he was definitely in tune with Godzilla's return in 1984 for the 1984 movie and was like, that's awesome. We need our version of this, Um, which is probably where you see a lot of people call Polgasari the Korean Godzilla. Um, In fact, the first time I ever heard of Polgasari... I don't remember where. It might maybe it was an old issue of G Fan. It had to have been. It was when I was a, a kid, uh, you know. So this is like the '90s, and there's uh, uh, a picture of the monster, and the the caption just said something about the Korean Godzilla, and I that that was all all, all the context I had was this picture. And the caption said Korean Godzilla. So uh, for a long time, I was like. So I guess there was a Korean version of Godzilla, and it looked like this weird big bull thing. Um, and then I didn't see the movie until 1999, shortly after it came out in Japan, at which point uh, bootleg VHS tapes were popping up with subtitles, and that's when I first saw the movie. And and then. Even then, it's like I just saw the movie. I didn't know. I didn't know it was made with slave labor. I didn't know none of this um, until I don't know, maybe a year or two later. Um, I, I didn't hear anyone talk about it until Americans had seen the movie and were able to write about it. So, uh, anyway, little tangent. Um, so, uh, Anyway, uh, Kim Jong-il is a big movie nerd, and he's seeing a lot of movies that uh, are very, very successful um, internationally, and he's grown rather bored by the North Korean propaganda films. 
Um, you know, he's on record saying, you know, he finds it, he finds them uninteresting. Um, he feels like they're all the same. He feels like it's all the same plot with the same message. It's all this, you know, uh, stuff about dying for your leader. And I'm sure he's cool with that, but he's like, it's really like, he, he's, he's really starting to get jealous, especially of South Korea because their cinematic output is kind of opening up. Um, they are having movies shown at big film festivals, and he wants that. And he, he, he just feels like their film program needs a complete overhaul. Um, so we're going to put a pin in Mr. Kim Jong-il's story, and we are going to talk about two people um, that he has his sights on. One is um, the director, Shin Sang-ok, and the other is um, the actress, Che Yoon-hee, um, who, uh, for a time, primarily in the 60s, were like a South Korean power couple in the movie industry. Um, he was easily one of the biggest directors, um, a uh, ton of influence, um, made a lot of movies that were critically acclaimed. I mean, you know, I, I, I imagine him in his prime being like, you know, there like Steven Spielberg. Um, and he had married this actress, Che, who was the biggest star of her time in South Korea. She was she was the uh, the the Madam White Snake in the Korean version of Madam White Snake, for example. Okay, yeah, there you go. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, and and you know they made lots of movies together. Eventually, they did divorce. Um, they adopted some kids, but uh, it, it turned out that Shin um, was cheating on her and uh, had fathered children with this other woman. So they split up, and uh, neither of their careers maintain the momentum that they had um shin was he, he liked to spend a lot of money on movies uh and just go over budget spend a lot of money on you know ad campaigns to the point where you know gangsters would come to his house to try and collect money for the printing company that he made movie posters for um so, I mean, his, his career is really kind of getting into the dirt. Um, he's finding it harder and harder to get work. It's at the point uh, where he really can't make anything. He was, he was also getting in some tr trouble with the, the government in terms of pushing some boundaries that the, the Park administration wasn't super happy about. Because, remember, South Korea was a little tyrannical also. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and... um. And Che is also, you know, uh, kind of becoming a has-been, um, you know, not really, you know, getting work as an actress. Um, and so these being two formerly top-tier South Korean talents, Kim uh, is aware of their work and their reputation, and he's like, I, you know, basically, I, I bet I can make them make movies for me. Um, and uh, so 
he uh so so shin is actually making like exploitation movies in hong kong at this point because that's where he's getting work um and he's making like women in prison movies and sexploitation movies and stuff um and he had later said that he uh when I get to the next point of the story, you'll you'll see why. But it's it's uh, he he was kind of he later in his life said he looking back is kind of suspicious that maybe um, Kim Jong Il was actually maybe funding some of those Hong Kong productions. Um, so uh, this starts with the kidnapping of uh, Che, who gets a um, basically an invite um, to star in a movie in Hong Kong. And uh, she meets up with a woman at, uh, at, you know, she has a hotel room. She meets up with this woman and uh, this woman's child uh, daughter. And, you know, they're, they're in Hong Kong and uh, Che is being shown around. Uh, they go shopping. They go to the mall. They, you know, they, they do kind of touristy stuff for the day. And then um, later on. Good 80s mall montage. <laughs> yeah, shopping montage. Exactly. Um, Material girl in Chinese. Or... Right, right. Yeah, so so they uh so so they go to uh Hong Kong and have a shopping montage. Uh after after that, um they're hanging out on the beach and um the lady uh kind of like signals for them to go meet like some I don't know what to call them, I'll just say goons. Like just these like random dudes by a speedboat. And uh, she goes over there and, uh, next thing you know, she has a sack over her head and they are speeding off on this speedboat. And so they get to, um, an, a, another boat and they sail away and she is kept, um, in a room, uh, and, uh, basically kept asleep the whole time every few hours you know a few times a day um one of these guys would come in with an iv and you know shoot her full of some i don't know some tranquilizer or whatever um that lasted for like eight days and then um and then she uh uh finds herself in north korea and um eventually she is uh led to meet a man who says to her, I'm as short as a midget's turd, aren't I? A uh, very strange way to introduce yourself. Uh, and then that man says, welcome to North Korea. I am Kim Jong-il. <laughs> um, and uh, he just kind of like keeps her around, really. Um he brought these people there to make movies, and for the first few years, they don't do any of that. Um, so, I don't know, she just kind of, like, hangs around and is followed by a lot of people, and, like, um, it seems like, aside from the whole, like, hey, you can't leave, and you're here against your will <laughs> deal, you know, it seems like she's, you know, treated okay, you know, it sounds like she... Um, Material-wise, is treated well anyway. Okay, so we're going to take a break from Kim Jong-il and uh, Che Yun-hee for a moment, and then we're going to talk about, uh, uh, go back to Shin. 
uh, Shin Sang Ok has, you know, I, so I mean, Che is a famous woman, and so the news of her disappearance is spreading across the media. People uh, are suspicious she may have um, deflected to North Korea. Some people think she might be dead. No one knows where she is, really. And, uh, you know, that being Shin's ex-wife and, you know, the mother of their adopted children, you know, obviously he knows about it. And, um, you know, he still cares about her and he's, like, worried. And he's, like, he thinks maybe she is in North Korea. And he's, like, I should, like, say something. I should, like, try to find her. And so he's talking to a friend who is actually a North... Actually, funny coincidence, is actually also a North Korean spy. Um, And uh, it's not long before Shin finds his face underneath a sack uh, and he's breathing in chlorophyll and he wakes up in a North Korean prison in solitary confinement where um, I think it was said he got a one-hour lunch break and a half-hour dinner break. Other than that, he is stuck in a tiny cell uh, with insects coming out of the floorboards, and he is sustaining on a diet of grass, rice, and salt. And that's his life for four years. (laughs) um at one point he did uh try to escape um he he found a a train um and and climbed up it and was like okay i don't you know he didn't know where this train was going but he's like hey it'll get me away from here um and then uh turns out uh the train track is just a big circle so the train was going in a big circle and uh He was found when he fell asleep on top of the train and the conductor noticed his legs hanging off the side of the train. Um, And so they take him back to prison and they're like, hey, don't do that. And then so he begins to realize like, okay, I'm going to have to play by their book if I'm going to ever get out of this place. So he is uh, uh, starts writing kind of fake letters talking about how he's been indoctrinated to the North Korean way and, uh, you know, glory to the leader. And so he's basically starting to put up this front that he's, like, brainwashed by North Korea because I guess, hey, if I can't beat him, I can try to join them and maybe that will lead to some way I can get out of here. Which, honestly, that's probably the only thing I would be able to think to do also. So, like I said, four years pass of no movies being made, and uh, then um, Kim Jong-il hosts this big dinner. I don't... Do either of you recall, was that a birthday thing, or what was the event? I guess it doesn't really matter. Anyone? I don't recall the specific... Am I still uh, ch- uh, chiming away? No, you're Matt. You are normal, right for yeah. now. <laughs> um, I think it might have been his birth. It, it doesn't really it matter. Yeah. The point is, Kim Jong Il had a big dinner gathering, and uh, Che was there, and Shin was there, and they like 
locked eyes and were like, what, what? And they were like completely like floored to see each other. Remember, it's been four years of this woman basically hanging around a farm in a mansion all day and this other guy eating like dirt <laughs> in a cell all day. So uh, they're pretty, they're quite literally speechless. I think that uh, all, all they can say to each other is like, what happened to you or something. Um, and at this dinner, Kim Jong-il is like, I have an announcement to make. Uh, this is the director, Shin Sang-ok. This is the actress, Che Yoon-hee. And together they will be running the North Korean film whatever. I don't know what the, the, the word terminology used was but basically they're going to be making movies here for us and running our film program from now on and everyone's woo woo and they're just like what's happening <laughs> um and uh kim jong-il pulls uh shin aside and he's like so from what i understand you were like a prisoner and you were, like, eating mud in in a tiny cell for four years with, like, an hour of sunlight every day, and he was like, yeah, it was the worst. And he's like, you know, I think... <laughs> I forget exactly what he said. There's actual audio of this, too, um, which is probably the coolest thing about the documentary is you get to, like, hear all these tapes, and he's like, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. I, I, I think there was a mix-up with my guys. Like, I'll make sure to talk to them about it. I, I uh, was busy. I, I don't know what happened. And, um, and, uh... He said the same thing when he was talking to, to Koizumi about the Japanese people that were kidnapped. Like, oh, it was, it was overzealous delegates or whatever. Yeah, he's like, I don't know what happened there. And it's like, I don't know about that. Um... So, uh, from then, uh, for the next, um, I think it's the next four years, I think it was basic, right? Was it seven or eight years they were there? Um, it, it, was, it was seven total years, right? Because yeah, he, yeah. he disappeared in 78 and he got out in 85. Okay, so, um, so for the next seven, or the next three years... They are doing the movies and cranking them out. Um, Shin himself directed seven movies in North Korea under Kim Jong-il, and uh, he produced and oversaw more. I think something like 13 more. So, um, But Kim Jong-il, being a fan of these people, uh, like this is like the most... Fan this is like a f the fancier version of like Misery. You know, <laughs> Kathy Bates and James Caan... Uh, so he, he's like, okay, um, well, whatever. Uh, the last four years, eh, it was nothing. Let's, let's, let's put you guys to work. Um, and, uh, I guess the upside of this is they're working and getting paid well. Um, and for Shin, he's actually at a point now where he is back to, um, making movies with a lot of resources, um, I mean, Kim Jong-il basically said, like, don't even bother asking me what the budget is. You name it, you got it. Um, and so uh, uh, Shin starts um, 
and uh, he's making movies. And the whole time, um, you know, Kim Jong Il is kind of describing his, uh, um, I guess, ambitions for North Korean cinema, wanting it to branch out and be, you know, international, and not want it to just be, you know boring propaganda he wants movies that will be in different genres like i said before it was really just dramas where you know i don't know there's some political turmoil and someone dies for uh for you know north korea you know glory to the leader kind of stuff but he wants love stories and you know he he wants what south korea is getting he wants to get into film festivals he he is jealous that they have uh, a better movie industry and that's what he wants. Um, it's so funny because, like, it's all because of what he's doing anyway. Though, like, you have to have these these strong messages about how Kim Il Sung is the greatest. <laughs> oh, why are my movies boring? Oh, I want these <laughs> movies that can compete with with Hollywood movies. By the way, nobody aside from me is allowed to watch Hollywood movies to know what I'm talking about. Like, uh, yeah, he he's uh, he the the man was not well. Um, so, uh, and, uh, of the seven movies that Shin, uh, directed, um, uh, Paul Fisher's book says really only the first two are the ones that are really heavy on propaganda. Um, my guess is because after that, you know, Mike, I would, I, I would assume it's because that's when Kim Jong-il was like, okay, you've proven you'll make movies and I want to branch out anyway. So, uh. At that point, it sounds like Kim was a little bit more, I guess, hands-off. And aside from making visits to the sets and making sure things were running okay, um, it, you know, it doesn't sound like he was really having much creative input, which is probably going to explain Polgasari, which I, I think there may be some coding there. We'll, we'll, we'll put a pin in that part of the discussion. But uh, it was he, he made a lot of set visits, and it was apparently quite a problem when he did most of the time for South Korean movies, because, you know, if the great leader touches something, it has to be taken away to the great leader museum. (laughs) Uh, And uh, that's, that's not good for, for budgets. Um, But apparently Shin was able to kind of, kind of boss around some of these kind of silly protocols. And um, then, I mean, they were still doing things like shooting all of the scenes in order uh, in, in movie order as opposed to what makes sense to film a movie in. But um, they were doing it a little bit more efficiently than uh, than things had been done previously. Um, so like I said, the, the first two movies... I, oh, go ahead, Justin. Go, go ahead. I was also going to say, to your earlier point, though, about, you know, nobody's allowed to watch the movies but Kim Jong-il. Well, you know, Kim Jong-il did do them sir did do them the service of writing a whole book about how films should be made. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I didn't mention that. I, I think that was before this. Uh, yeah, yeah. What, what was it called? Um, it's got like a boring title, On Cinema. I think it's just called like On Film by Kim <laughs> Jong-il. <laughs> it's, something like, it's something adjacent to that. I know that's not it exactly, but it's every bit is generic. Here, um, it's, uh, it's On the Art of the Cinema by Kim Jong-il. Yeah, and it was full of... Yeah, and I, I guess it was full of, like, his dad's talking points about, you know, the importance of, uh, of uh, you know, I guess having, you know, that nationalistic messaging and stuff like that. Um, um, 
but yeah, so the first two movies of that uh, of Shin's cycle uh, uh, under Kim Jong Il in North Korea, the first one was Emissary of No Return, uh, which apparently Kim Jong Il didn't even like that movie. He, uh, but it, it won like some awards or something, and then he was like, "Oh, it's good." <laughs> um, but that was actually ba- supposed based on a play that um, Kim Il Sung supposedly wrote. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, uh, the other one after that was Runaway, um, but then after that, they, they do get more loosened up, uh, as far as the types of movies they were making, um, Love, Love, My Love was, uh, um, a a tragedy, uh, Salt is probably, after Pulgasari, probably the most famous one, um, that was a, a big budget kind of fantasy musical, um, uh, and so they're, they're, they're making love stories. They're making things that North Korean people have not seen in film. Um, and uh, <clears throat> um, and, and those movies are like, people are receptive to them. Um, and so Kim Jong-il is like, well, uh, how about... Uh, you know, Japan has this Godzilla thing and it, it seems pretty sweet. We should do a monster movie. Um, and, uh, that's where we get to the making of Polgasari. Um, and Kim Jong-il, of course, being a nerd is like, um, we don't, uh, want, we don't know what we're doing. So let's get the best of the best. So he flies in. Uh, a crew from Toho to handle the monster stuff, um, including many familiar names. Um, we have uh, uh, Teriyoshi Nakano uh, as a special effects director. Uh, Ichi Asada is a assistant director. Um, uh, Ken Satsuma, of course, the Heisei Godzilla suit actor, is um, in the Polgasari suit. And uh, Little Man Machan, who played Minya, is the baby Polgasari. Um, and then, you know, there's other crew and technicians. I believe Satsuma said there were about uh, 15 Japanese crew. Um, Satsuma actually wrote a book about his experience um, in North Korea making this movie that uh, unfortunately has not been translated into English, which... Uh, it's a real shame, um, but it's called North Korea Seen Through the Eyes of Godzilla. Um, and uh, the the experience of the Japanese was very strange. I know Satsuma was, he thought he was making like a Hollywood movie, and he didn't learn until like right before his flight, the you know, that he was going to North Korea, and he was like, what? What? And he also didn't know he was going to be uh, tasked with being in the monster suit. You know, he, he thought he was going to be, like, an on-camera, you know, uh, actor, like, playing, like, a human. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he was pretty baffled. I know um, uh, supposedly some of the other crew members were told they were going to go shoot in Hong Kong, and they wound up, they, they, they were in North Korea. Um, Nakano said that uh, he was pretty sure their phones were tapped. Um, 
I guess he he recalled telling a story about um, talking on the phone and mentioning like a Japanese beer that he likes, and then coming back from the set one day to find his fridge like full of that beer. Um, and I think Nakano said that uh, Kim Jong Il actually had him like hang out in his screening room and like watch movies with him. Um, and uh, the Korean crew and the Japanese crew didn't really talk that much. Um, they were kind of kept separate. Um, uh, and uh, anyway. Um, I think it's worth mentioning, you know, we don't have um, Tatsuma's uh, book, obviously, in English. But there is a book um, from uh, 2007 uh, called Film Out of Bounds, which is a collection of essays. It was published by McFarlane. But it has... Um, a chapter in it on the history of North Korean cinema uh, by a, a German scholar. Kevin, do you want to help us with that name? Oh, it was uh, Johannes Schoenherr? Yeah. Um, so there's, an, there's a chapter 14 is an essay on the history of North Korean cinema, which we also made use of in, in preparing for this episode. And it also goes over a lot of the, the information that uh, Kyle's mentioned. And then following that in chapter 15, is uh, Schoenherr's interview that he did with uh, Satsuma. So you can read a, a pretty lengthy uh, and amusing interview um, that Satsuma gave uh, talking about his experience making um, Polgasari, including some of the anecdotes that Kyle just related and, uh, and some other stuff. You know, He talks about the fact that they were brought over initially with the idea that they were going to be kind of... Um, supervising the uh, North Korean special effects people. And then the reason why the Toho crew ended up doing the special effects themselves and Satsuma ended up inside the Polgasari costume is because, uh, as, as we were just saying, um, none of these guys had any experience doing special effects. And uh, Satsuma describes them as being just, you know, completely, you know, helpless. He was like, they, you know, we, we tried to explain it to them over and over again and show them what they were supposed to do. And they just, you know, they didn't get it. They, you know, they were, they were total noobs. They had no idea <laughs> what was going on. Um, and then finally we were just like, you know what, just move, we'll do it ourselves. <laughs> so, and, that sounds um, like Satsuma. and, and, uh, Satsuma also talks about, you know, that they were kept in, uh, in one of Kim Jong-il's private mansions rather than like a hotel. Um, but you know, that it was, it was very odd because it was like, they tried to make it over into a, uh, an international hotel because they took out like all of Kim Jong-il's like personal photos that were hanging on the wall. Like you could see that all this stuff had been removed or was missing. And, um, Satsuma says he was put into a room that was clearly like a, a huge sort of, you know, um, bedroom that was designed for more than one person he says there were two beds in there but it was just all his and so he just decided to sleep in both beds alternating every other night so <laughs> didn't they film uh some of the soundstage stuff like in either china or hong kong because they were uh some of the there were some studio limitations within north korea yeah, yeah. the miniature stuff in was in uh in china all right like the 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 wrecking of the palace. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, um Satsuma says that in the interview. He says that the North Korean uh stages were too small and so they had to do that stuff in China. Yeah. Yeah. Um 
And uh, I guess it's not a surprise that uh, making a kaiju movie is kind of the next move here. You know, um, Godzilla was having a high-profile reboot in Japan. Um, And uh, like I said, I mean, uh, some people um, call Pulgasari a propaganda movie, but I, I think that that's kind of, well, I guess... They call it a North Korean propaganda movie. What kind of propaganda? I, I, I don't think it's North Korean, if, the, if it is there. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that when we talk about the movie itself a little bit um, in just a few minutes. But um, uh, Kim Jong-il, at, at this time, he does want movies that are more exciting, and they're not just propaganda. In fact, um, uh, two months before Pulgasari, a movie called uh, Hong Kil Dong uh, is considered to be the first movie made in North Korea f- solely for entertainment purposes. Um, that movie looks really fun, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks kind of wild. Um, and, uh, you know, around the same time, uh, you know, the, that new openness was kind of um, being shown elsewhere uh there there was um uh, a defection movie uh called the separation <clears throat> and uh uh that actually ha- opens with a shot of the eiffel tower and and that is footage that uh north korean um film crew went and shot in france um which w- was unheard of at the time um and uh that being said, it's probably the North Korean audiences probably wouldn't know where that shot is from. They probably don't know even know what the Eiffel Tower is. Like I said, about them being very closed off. Um, uh, and so, Pulgasari uh, is made, um, and uh, it's not too long after that. Um, Oh, another thing to mention about Pulgasari, it's actually one of the movies that uh, Shin directed that does not star Che. Um, she was uh, in um, a few of those movies as well as the lead actress. Um, I think Salt is probably the one that um, was like, I don't know, her, her most known role from this run of movies. Um, anyway, um, uh, so during all of this, uh, like I said, I mean, um, Shin at, at this point has been working for three years, you know, convincing Kim Jong-il basically that he is fully on board with North Korea. He is, you know, saying, you know, I, I shouldn't, you know, South Korea is the worst. North Korea is the best. You're the best. Everything's great here. Like I am full blown, North Korean nationalist now. Yeah, like, I mean, he, that's a, a, a front that he's been putting on for years now. And so um, Kim Jong-il buys in after, after you know, making so many successful movies at this point. Kim Jong-il trusts him, you know, with everything. Uh, you know, he has, is, he is, you know, become close to your enemy, or keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, you know? Um, and so... Uh, he eventually, uh, so I, I think once Pulgasari, uh, that's in the can, and he's like, okay, next project, what should we do? And um, he convinces uh, Kim Jong-il, you know, um, 
to go in on a co-production, uh, a European co-production, and um, they are uh, are they are they in Vienna for the Vienna Film Festival? I think it was for the film festival. Yeah. So they so uh, Kim Jong Il. Um, He's like, yeah, that sounds great, whatever. And so um, Shin and Che, they are uh, uh, always followed by, I think, up to 20 people. And the, ever since they um, reunited, um, they've been remarried under Kim Jong-il's pressure, of course, but they, stay, they do stay married. Um, so this is a very odd love story also. Um, uh, and they go to Vienna for the Vienna Film Festival, and that's also where they're supposed to meet up with, uh, I think I think that's where they're supposed to meet up with this investor um, to talk about doing this co-production. And um, they aren't too far from the U.S. Embassy, and they, uh, at this point, one thing I didn't mention, well, I guess I sort of mentioned it, but they've been recording a ton of these conversations that they're having with Kim Jong-il. You know, Shay would put a recorder in her purse. So um, this is also the first time anyone outside of North Korea will hear Kim Jong-il's voice. Um, like I said, very closed-off country. Um, and uh, it should be mentioned that uh, that if they, get, if, they, if they got caught doing that, it is either like life in prison or maybe even a death sentence. Um, so it's quite ballsy that they even did that, but they were like, you know, it's the only way anyone's going to believe us. Um, and so uh, they find the opportune moment to hastily pack up some bags and get to a taxi, and they say, take us to the U.S. Embassy. Um, the, you know... Uh, the taxi is followed by some guards, um, and uh, it's said that it gets stopped. It it gets stopped at a busy intersection at a red light. They run into the embassy and they're like, "Hi, we're uh, we're we're South Korean, and we've been uh, kidnapped, and we've been here for seven years. Like, please help us." And the people at the embassy are just like, "Uh, oh, well, that's a new." That's new to us. <laughs> it's never happened before. Um, and then uh, they, uh, they, they get them out, basically. The, the, the Americans kind of take it from there, and um, they, uh, they, they, they have safe refuge here in, in the United States. Um, and... Uh, uh, it, they they wanted to make movies here, um, and I guess that didn't quite work out the way they wanted. Um, you know, Shin wanted to make a movie about his experience, which probably due to the racism in Hollywood, especially in the 90s, um, you know, they're not going to get a movie like that made with Asian leads or anything like that. And so Shin is picking up some... Uh, so basically work for hire as a producer... Um, he uh, he produced um, the Three Ninjas sequels here, which uh, were for Disney, which he did make a lot of money off of those. So, you know, I mean, at least the guy's getting paid. Um, and then uh, he starts his own production company, Sheen Enterprises. 
Evan, do you know if it's Enterprises? I don't remember. Well, by the time we get to Galgameth, uh, I will have that information. Um, anyway, his, 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 his ground-up company, Sheen, maybe Enterprises, uh, they make one movie, which is a uh, medieval-set, um, Victorian-era kind of remake of Polgasari. And uh, that's the last movie he um, made here with that banner. And then uh, he eventually returned to South Korea, um, and he made a couple movies there, none of which were really uh, very big. And um, he wasn't really welcome back in South Korea with open arms. It was with skepticism, and people kind of viewed him as a traitor. Yeah, right. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-il, you know, after the escape, that kind of uh, openness in film uh, wasn't really flying anymore. Not so much because Shin escaped, but more because um, the Soviet Union and China um, were opening up their economy to um, kind of um, more capitalistic uh, ways, which Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung... felt threatened by, so um, they kind of uh, re-upped the propaganda efforts um, to kind of keep those influences from invading North Korea. Um, And, uh, uh, you know, Kim Jong-il devised all kinds of cuckoo ideas after that, like, you know, trying to compete with Japan having, you know, the longest series of films, uh, so he made... um, he he made this series that was like I don't know going on into like the fifties and sixties entry, um, all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, and then I guess a little he's he's trying to compete with the Torasan series. Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. yep. Um, and I yeah, Kim Jong Il is crazy, and he's getting all kinds of cuckoo ideas. Uh, um, uh, but yeah, the. The Korean film, the North Korean film industry was like on its deathbed. And um, eventually the South Korean president, uh, Kim Dae-jung, went um, to meet with Kim Jong-il. And, uh, you know, they had a good meeting and the parties were kind of uh, sort of agreed to hold off on making any hostile propaganda towards each other. Um, uh, And uh, but that ended up falling through. Um, just because I, I don't know, I, I, I forget the exact reason, but it's neither here nor there. The point is Kim Jong-il does not keep friends. <laughs> um, and, uh, in 1998, a uh, Japanese film historian by the name of Edoki Jun, uh, had convinced, uh, North Korea, um, or Korean film studios, um, to give him the rights to put Polgasari out in Japan. Um, and it was released in Japan as kind of a f- hilarious, uh, hilariously as a Godzilla 98 mockbuster. You look at the Japanese um, VHS box, uh, the poster, it's got that kind of gl- same glowing uh, text, only it's red, but, you know, the same font. Uh, and it was released in Japanese theaters, and uh, it was a hit. Um, Satsuma said that uh, he thought it was better than the 98 Godzilla. I think most of us would probably agree. Um, and uh, South Korean distributors 
actually were influenced by its success in Japan, and uh, they bought the movie for a lot of money, um, the rights to uh, Pulgasari, and they showed it in um, South Korean theaters, and uh, it didn't go so well. Um, in fact, only 500 tickets are said to be sold for the South Korean release of Pulgasari. Um, uh, a lot of theaters stopped showing it before the end of that week. Um, South Korean newspapers kind of tried to blame it on the, uh, you know, the goofy, you know, tokusatsu effects. Uh, you know, it's campy and South Korean kids wouldn't want to buy it. Um, but it's probably more that um, uh, in, we covered this on our Yangri episode, it, it wasn't until 1999 that Japanese movies were allowed to be shown in South Korea, so there was really no kaiju culture or fandom, so they probably just looked at it... Like, even the first Yongari was, like, pretty much lost um, to them, not to us. And so they probably just looked at Pulgasari and were like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> um, um, and then, yeah, you know, it being North Korean was probably not helping. Um so, wow. Uh, that's, that's the story of Polgasari and uh, Mr. Shin. I guess before we get into the movie, I don't know, maybe this is a good conversation to... Actually, forget the last five seconds of things I said. I, I feel like I want to end the show on this note that I was going into, um, partially because I'm just tired of talking. Um, that was a lot of information. <laughs> um so uh, I will surrender this conversation to someone else to give us a plot breakdown of Pulgasari, and uh, we can actually talk about the movie itself. Let, let me take a stab, and then one of you correct me slash fill in the gaps. So uh, <clears throat> Pulgasari is basically about, uh, you start off like in this village, there's a blacksmith, um, and the governor, we learned, is basically ruling, you know, ruling everything with an iron fist. And he's confiscating and stealing and raiding things and killing people. And basically says, hey, you need to make uh, you need to make every melt all the, the metal down, make these weapons because we're we need the weapons. Uh, he refuses and then he lands in prison. And then uh, there's a couple of days I go by and he has a, he has a daughter and. and um they they start visiting him or they start visiting him and trying to find him and like they're like screaming over the side of this uh like this embankment thing. Anyway, this blacksmith crafts a creature out of like rice and dirt and whatever he can find. It's like this little, you know, handmade figure. And then he he asks the gods to bring this creature to life to save to basically uh defeat the the <clears throat> the villains of the story, which in this case is like the the ruling party, the government, the monarchy. Um, eventually, he he actually dies right after making uh, making the creature, and when they bring his body out, um, the the figure of Paul Gasari like falls, and his, his daughter happens to find it. She takes it home. Um, eventually, she's like she like pricks herself with a needle or something, and it covers Paul Gasari in blood, which is something that I think Justin talked talked about during. Uh, during his little segment about the the actual legend, and uh, it brings it to life, and Paul Gasari immediately eats the the needle, and they learn pretty quickly 
he likes metal. So he's eating like pots and pans and, you know, the, the tops of weapons and things. Um, and then he becomes this huge creature. And eventually what happens is that Paul Gasari starts defeating some of the, uh, the villains that have taken over villages. And then the peasants basically start their own ragtag resistance and they fight alongside Paul Gasari to take down the government. And that's kind of the, the basic gist of the plot. Um, so, the whoa, end... whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, this is about an oppressive government that is forcing someone to uh, perform their craft against their will. Hmm. And he's put in prison. <laughs> a very solitary prison confinement. Yeah, and... that was something I know we're going to talk about, but like, <laughs> it makes me surprised that this got made. Uh, just because of the story. Anyway, we'll we'll talk about that. In a it's minute. it's a bit of a of a Rorschach test because you can you can point to pieces of it and be like, see, this is about the people pooling their resources and making sacrifices to support the party or whatever, which overthrows the oppressors. I think that's. I think that's. I think Kim Jong Il probably saw that aspect of it and said, like, ah, yes. You know, this is uh, us rising, you know, this is, you know, like my father rising up and, you know, um, seizing control of, of, of the nation. But um, I don't know. There's some similarities here. And also the fact that Shin wrote a, and produced a remake of this after he left. I, I, I think that for whatever reason, this is a story that he connects with. Um, and then you also have to look at the monster Pulgasari. Once the oppressive government is defeated, he is not satiated. He still is going to do whatever he needs to, to eat all the metal that he can and get bigger. And, and, and so he becomes, he, he ends up becoming the menace after he's taken out that previous regime, which you could also say is like, okay, so, so now that that regime is gone, there's a new threat that is replacing it. So it could be read that way, which is, uh, Shino, even after he escaped, he always said, Pulgasari is just a monster movie. So I don't know. um, I don't know if you guys want to, Give your I mean, opinions on that. I mean, the the thing is, is like, and you, you say, like, you know, I think this is a story that, um, you know, connected with him, and I, I feel like this is, I mean, I think that probably would go without saying to a certain extent, because, as I outlined, I mean, this is a a, a you know, fairly well known sort of modern Korean fairy tale. I mean, the, the monster itself seems to go back. A really long way in art. The story itself doesn't seem to be any older than the mid 19th century, but it obviously um, really resonated, considering the fact that there has been, you know, at least two film versions. This this is a creature or an idea that keeps showing up in other media, right? I mean, only you know four years before, um, you know, uh, Shin Sang Ok has to make this film for Kim Jong-il, you have the once upon a time episode on television and 
in South Korea, right? Yeah. So um, people know about <clears throat> Polgasari. Right. Pe- yeah. People know about it. They, there's there's clearly a, a, a connection there on on some level. It's still showing up in children's cartoons and being used as the basis for you know K drama series on Netflix. And then as far as the whole you know. I, I see this all the time, right? Is there's always this question of, you know, people watch this movie and then, you know, they want to read it as, as Shin, like sticking it to Kim Jong-il, right? Mm-hmm. But it's such a, it's such a basic, as I said before, such a basic Gollum story, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's this, it's this idea of you make a monster to fight off your oppressors and then you lose control of the monster you made, right? I mean, it's the same. I mean, you know, the Kiru films in the Godzilla series are golem stories, right? You make a monster to fight the monster and the monster you made turns out to be worse. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I pointed out, like even with the, the older forms of this story that we seem to have that have, have come down to us, whether, you know, they, they originate in the 19th century or if they are actually, um, oral tradition, and that's just when they're written down, right? Um, there, there seem to even be two versions there, where it's like, well, who do you want to depict as being your enemy, right, or your hero? Do you want the Buddhists to be the good guys, or do you want them to be, you know, uh, sex crazed despots, you know? Um, and you, you can just, you can just move the pieces around, and I, I sort of see that with. Uh, the 85 Polgasari movie as well, right? You know, you you watch it and it's like, well, who do you want Polgasari to be? You know, do you want to read Polgasari as being uh, the Kim family, as being, uh, you know, the the new communist government coming in and then being worse than the old, um, you know, regimes that were in place before it? Or, I mean, I've also seen the interpretation uh, given that we're supposed to understand that the uh, the villains of the movie, right, the um, the despotic uh, emperor, right, they're actually supposed to be like the Kim family, right? So the ostensible villains of the movie and Polgasari is supposed to be like the Americans or the South Koreans mm-hmm. who would come in and liberate the people. Right. You know, so it's like you may think that you had it bad under this military dictatorship that's talking about, you know, war all the time and and saber rattling. But we're not actually as bad as your supposed liberators who would then come in and take everything from you. So now not only do you not have your pots and pans and your farm implements, you don't have weapons to fight them off either because this thing has just eaten everything. Right. And and yeah, so I'll let somebody else well, chime in. There, that's, a, that's my feeling. There's a lot of ways to read it. You could read it as a pro Shin movie or a pro Kim movie or just a monster movie. Um, and I don't know. All three of those might be valid <laughs> in a way. Um, I, if I have to pick one of the two big ones, I would say I, 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 there's no way he directed this and, you know, the prison sequences and stuff and didn't think about his situation. Um, so whether consciously or subconsciously, I think it's there. Um, but I don't, but at this point, just looking at the facts, it seems like Kim Jong-il was pretty much just letting him do whatever. 
Um, so I don't know if this was a conscious, like, oh, like middle finger to him, but I, I do think that he's he's probably, you know, thinking about his situation. I don't know. Matt, Kevin, I, w- I would like to hear your thoughts, too. Uh, I would like, say thematically, that... it's kind of messy uh, if, if you're trying to uh, kind of map any one element onto another. It feels like it kind of has multiple morality stories uh, inconsistent with who would be who, just kind of general, like, yes, self-sacrifice good or whatever. Yeah, like, if you're doing a a one-to-one comparison, like, that leads to all the the various interpretations because what is Paul Gasari? Who is he actually fighting for? And so I think I tend to take Shin at his word when he says it's just a monster movie, but I also agree, like, the reason he would be so connected with the story probably is because of that one character in the jail. Like, there's no way he would, like, literally the, the guy taking the grass and the rice and, like, that's all he has and he's starving to death, which is basically what happened to him for four years and makes this creature to save him. Like, yeah, of course he's going to connect that story. That's essentially what happened to him. And then if you think about um, Galgameth, like, there's also the weird romantic plot in that. Like, you could easily look at that and say, well, that's him and his, you know, his ex and then remarried wife. Uh, I just, you know, for whatever reason, the story stuck with him. I don't think doing a one-to-one comparison and reading it that way, like, it thematically doesn't quite hold up but I can definitely see why people would read it that way. And when I watched it, the first thing I thought was like, I'm actually surprised they allowed him to make the story because he's literally, he's like, he's pro rebellion initially, right? Like he's squashing the the King and the monarchy. And so like, I was surprised uh, that it would even allow that, like just from that alone seemed like a risky yeah. move. Well, Kim Jong-il is, I think deluded enough to be like, Oh, this is like my dad. You know, rising <laughs> That's up also against probably fair. Yeah, you know, this uh, is my dad rising up against everybody. You know, and and so I think in that. So, but yeah, you could read it as either like, is this supportive of the communist dictatorship, or is this like supportive of the people under it? And uh, yeah, I think Kim probably read it as like, oh yeah, it's like my dad sticking it to the man, and this is how we got to where we are. It's also it's also important to remember, I think, some of that um, historical context I talked about in the beginning, right? Because um, this film, based on everything that I've read, is is like the traditional story, supposed to be set in the late um, Koreo period of, um, of of Korea. So again, um, it's also worth remembering that, and and it presumably a a North Korean audience would understand this, that like those despots who are, um, you know, ruining the lives of these farmers and peasants, they're not even ethnically Korean, right? They're supposed to be Mongolians. This is a point when Korea is a puppet state under Mongolia. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so again, it's this understanding that they're foreigners, they're outsiders. And so then, yeah, if you're supposed to understand that, um, the, the Kims are identifying with the rebels, right? If that's the interpretation we're supposed to make, that also, that also makes sense. And that goes into some of the stuff that, um, uh, was it, um, Schoenher, um, talks about in film out of bounds where he, he talks a little bit about what you alluded to earlier, Kyle, which is that the Kim family has always identified themselves. Like 
I don't know if they've if there is ever a necessary actual like Kim cult, but the Kims have always identified themselves with sort of like the mythical founders of Korea. And they've really over the years pushed that in the propaganda that it's like you're supposed to think of us, you know, if not as literal gods, as basically akin to the gods who started the nation. So, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if folk, it, it, like getting too wrapped up in that, you know, I don't know. It's not something we need to do. I, I, um, I don't know that it's the most productive thing. I think a lot of people without some of the facts, some of the, the cultural context, some of that stuff would easily say it's one or the other. Um, but people that don't know a lot say a lot of things. <laughs> like, um, I can't be the only person, because, like I said, my, the first time I ever heard of this movie was, it's the Korean Godzilla. That's it. Um, and I don't know if there's maybe other people that maybe knew, heard that before anyone ever really saw it outside North Korea. But I still hear people say it's a ripoff of Godzilla. It's a shameless... Uh, clone of Godzilla and and all this I hear that a lot and this movie is like not at all like Godzilla aside from it being you know guy in a rubber monster suit I'd say like Yongri is more yeah of a, if, if you're gonna look at one like Korean Godzilla knockoff yeah. Uh, regarding you know the whole thing with like Shin's personal connection to the story resulting in uh, Galgameth, I do have to wonder if maybe it was just kind of a thought process of like, okay, well, I've been making the Three Ninjas movies uh, and kind of channeling some of the stuff that I had done in my previous career. What other like children's movie type of thing can I do? What am I most known for, frankly, in the Western world at this point? Like, if if you, if you are like, yeah, he had a big career in South Korea, but like people know him for Pulgasari, basically. So I can see uh, that might have been like the easy selling for you know investors of like, okay, well, let's do that thing that was very successful. In North Korea. Yeah. I, I also want to say that um, I do agree with sort of one of the points that Kyle's making, which is that um, I, I do think that it's very bad uh, literary criticism to do, uh, to interpret any kind of art as autobiography. It's frankly often insulting to writers or filmmakers to assume that the only thing that they can produce has to be based off of yeah. some kind of uh, actual lived experience that they've had yeah. um the the only though, the only thing like like I, I already said it but the only the the most i can i would be like willing to say like almost factually about that and not just my own conjecture was he had to have been directing these scenes thinking about it like that's but i you know i say that about a lot of things like liam neeson did the one movie the gray where like they're like in the snow and, and you know stranded and and fighting off wolves and that was like right after his wife got in a skiing accident and died in the mountains. And so like when that movie came out, I was like, there's no way Liam Neeson wasn't chan Like he had to have been thinking about it. There has to be some real grief that he's expressing on screen. And so 
like like that like that's like the most i'd be willing to say like almost factually about this without getting into like conjecture the the only other thing that when i was watching it or rewatching it this afternoon that really struck me um on on the point of this whole sort of thematic issue is i did think it was interesting that in in this this version that it's a blacksmith um because if you if you want to talk about this tying into some kind of larger ideology as well, you know, I was like, huh, well, in the original uh, folk tales that we have that have come down to us, right, it's always a, a Buddhist monk who makes the monster. But there's no mention of, um, you know, other than the, the shamanist who shows up to try and perform the exorcism, there's really no mention of religion anywhere, which would fit with a sort of general kind of communist ideology. And then on top of that, oh, it's somebody from the working class, right? They're the heroes of the movie. They're the ones who make the monster, if that's your read on it. So, yeah, yeah we, we didn't mention it in the plot breakdown, but there is they, they basically mentioned that the they realize the monster is basically the spirit of the blacksmith or that's what they they surmise. They, and then they have a, this priestess uh, try to perform the exorcism. They even uh, bury Paul Gasari, like King Kong lift style, uh, in a bunch of boulders and it seems to defeat him. And then uh, he's resurrected or given new power, I guess, when um, the daughter cuts herself and gives it more blood and then eventually she's also what defeats him because she hides herself like in this giant uh, bell and he eats the bell and her and it somehow like turns him into stone so i thought that was that was pretty interesting but we didn't cover that in the initial um, so i just wanted to mention it. so uh what do we think of this movie um matt is this your first time with paul gasari yeah like i've known about it well, for a long yeah. time but i i've never never actually watched right. it until today. Well, I'll start with They're you. What, as the Pulgasari newcomer, what, what are your <laughs> thoughts? Uh, I like this a lot more than I thought I would because it occupies that weird uh, space in giant monster films where it's a period piece. And we just don't, I mean, you have obviously like Daimajin and we just talked about Magic Serpent recently. But uh, there's, a, there's sword battles and, and different things. It does have uh, a pretty fair amount of charm, I think. Um I, the, you know, the special effects are a bit wonky. They obviously don't have the same kind of budget as, say, like a Godzilla film would. But when they work well, they really work. They also have, like, the use of the huge Paul Gasari leg prosthetic that, like, crushes the the king later, which is pretty awesome. Um, but, I, I mean, overall, I, I, I thought it was pretty fun. Um, there's some really wonky editing choices. Like, they cut back and forth to different battles at kind of weird times, but, like, for what it was, I actually found myself enjoying it quite a bit. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I, I bought, like, a bootleg of it in 99, and, uh, I don't know, it, it's not, it, it's not a movie I was ever like, oh, I, it sucks, I hate it, it just, like, is one that just never really stuck with me, and so this was probably the first time I'd seen it Jeez, I mean, since the early two thousands, probably kind of, kind of like Yongeri. Like it's one that like I watched and was like, eh, it's fine, and then never really went back to. So it's not a favorite. But um, uh, now, like as an adult rewatching it, I still feel that way. But there were more like, I guess, B 
being more like movie literate now, there was more stuff that kind of stuck out with me. Like the score is very strange. Like it's like a weird <laughs> synth score and yeah. it doesn't match like the time period or like the feel at all. Um, I actually really liked this score. It's always one of the things that I've liked about the movie and it, it doesn't fit except for the fact that if you've watched a lot of like eighties and early nineties, like Hong Kong, um, films like a Chinese ghost story or, or something, they all have a very, very similar score. And there's something about it. Whenever I hear that sort of music, it makes me weirdly nostalgic. So, well, Justin, you just watched it today again. Uh, how did it kind of hold up for you? Um, so this was my second time that I, uh, seeing Polgasari. I don't remember how long ago I watched it. Um, the first time it was, it was definitely, um, quite a while ago, probably sometime around 2012, 2013, if not earlier. I know I got the VHS tape in 2015, um, which I've never actually watched because I've always just watched a, a rip that I had <laughs> of that tape. And it's, it's so far staying that way. Cause I'm treating the tape as a weird collector's item um but i i you know this was a movie and and to your point kyle i don't honestly remember when i first heard about polgasari it had i don't think it was in g fan but i'm i'm guessing it had to be in some godzilla book that i read uh somewhere they they would have mentioned it you know you tend to get a lot of times they'll have a, a section where they kind of go through like, and Godzilla, you know, gave us Gamera and Gappa and Yongari and Polgasari and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and it, I had always assumed that because it was a, a film made in North Korea, even though I guess at some point I became aware that it had had this, you know, uh, Japanese and South Korean talent coerced into it. Um, that it, it had to be just some horribly cheap, terrible, you know, looking, looking film. And so when I, I watched it, I was really, really surprised. Um, I thought that it was really good. Um, I was surprised, you know, I thought that it moved nicely. It's not a particularly long film. It's like an hour and a half, I think, if that, um, you know, and, and like Matt was saying, it falls into that category that we talked about before, um, with uh, when we did Magic Serpent, where it's a kaiju movie, but it's a period piece, and we don't have a lot of those, and that's always really interesting to see uh, uh, done, right? Something where the monsters are sort of more magic-based, and the weapons are a little bit more uh, low-tech, and you have these other sort of additional fantasy elements. And so um, I've always liked it. I've always It's always been one that when I've heard people uh, talk shit about it in the past who haven't seen it. I've always been inclined to kind of stand up for it and be like, Hey, you should actually watch it. It's, it's actually quite good. And there's a really interesting story behind it and, uh, rewatching it today. I mean, I still really liked it. It's, I, I think it's a, you know, it's, um, it's a really unique and, and interesting, uh, film, you know, and it's, uh, you know, it's a testament to the talent of everybody, that was involved that they could make a movie that good, I think under such um, adverse circumstances to say the least. All right, Kevin, what's your uh, thoughts on uh, Polgasari? 
Uh, I mean, as as a movie, I feel like it's, you know, of. I don't know, a similar tier to like Gappa or something <laughs> like you like you were saying, Bird, where it's like, yeah, I'll watch it every once in a while, but it's not something that is on my, you know, uh, ready at hand, quick pulls list. Um, uh, but it is definitely one that because the story behind it is so insane, I just find my my mind drifting back to this all of the baggage that comes with <laughs> yeah. it every time I watch it. There's a lot so of it. It's like it's it's very you know sometimes I'm like okay, there's this whole story about the rebellion here, and I just start thinking about you know the the books that I've read about the making of and stuff like that, and it's it's hard to just enjoy it for what it is uh, at at face value sometimes yeah it's pretty it's definitely pretty crazy um i'm gonna get back to that point in a a minute um kind of but i I wanted to piggyback on something justin said you know people that talk about this movie without seeing it um but even like some people that have seen it kind of give it a lot of uh like uh paul paul fisher's book um he calls it um one of the a movie that is so bad it's good and like as a lover of shitty movies myself um, I don't think that's true. I, 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 it has campy and silly and like maybe poorly staged moments, like a lot of the stuff with the baby Pulgasari, but like, this isn't a movie where I'd be like, oh, hey, like, want to watch, you know, come over and we'll watch The Room and the Pulgasari. Like, it's, it's pretty straight faced and a lot of it I think is relatively competent, um, so, like, it's one of those things where, like, when you hear this crazy story about Kim Jong-il and being a maniac and making this kaiju movie, you really do expect something to be more along what Fisher describes it to be, you know, something crazy over the top and, you know, maybe so bad it's good, whatever. But it's like, it's not. It's just kind of a movie. So, like, I think some people that watch it might expect that because of how insane it, everything was and because of, you know, descriptions like this by, you know, Paul Fisher, who is a, pretty much an authority on this situation. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's it's very bizarre that that's kind of the reputation it has. Even, like, The Daily Show and John Oliver's segments, you know, they pull, like, the goofiest clip of, like, the baby Pulgasari. So if you're looking for, like a campy, goofy movie, like, you'll get a little bit of that here, but not much, and probably not as much as, you know, if that's all you've seen or heard about it, it's probably going to be a letdown, and you are going to find the the making of more fascinating than the movie, which it is more interesting. Um, that's the, the biggest problem with Fisher's book, is, like, Fisher's book is great, except if you are a Godzilla fan, if you are a kaiju fan, I mean, it's pretty obvious that Fisher is not, and he's going in with And he that, will let you know that. <laughs> um, he, he will let you know that, and he is going in with that sort of common Western cultural assumption that Godzilla movies are all inherently bad, inherently campy. Yeah, they think they're all Godzilla versus Megalon, you know. Exactly, and, and that, that is sort of the one issue that his book has is that he does structure it in such a way that when you eventually get to the chapter on uh, the making of Polgasari, which I believe is actually titled, um, yeah, The Rubber Monster, right? It's very much treated as sort of the punchline to a joke. 
And if you're a fan of, of this stuff, like we all are, it might, it, it's, it's not that it's going to go over your head, but you're, you're not going to respond to it because the punchline can't just be, and Kim Jong-il kidnapped a bunch of people to make them be a Godzilla, to make them make him a Godzilla movie, right? For people who think Godzilla movies are terrible, that's the joke because it's like, well, why would you kidnap a bunch of people to make something so stupid? And and then the people that aren't kaiju fans that read the way he talks about it, they might check it out wanting like a dumb campy movie and think they're getting Godzilla versus Megalon. And instead they're getting like a fairly pedestrian, like more kid friendly version of Daimajin, you know? They're, they're getting, I was going to say, they're, what you get with this movie is if you've never seen Polgasari, but you've seen Daimajin, um, which I, I, I suppose is entirely more likely in this day and age, um, that's what you're getting. It's Daimajin. It's, yeah. That's what this is closest to. And the Daimajin movies are great. They're also some of the most absolutely po-faced kaiju movies ever made. The uh, the book also says that this uh, got a, a DVD release in the states, which it never did. Yeah, so. VHS only. Speaking of though, uh, kind of get to get back to Kevin's point about like watching this movie. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I can enjoy it as a piece of ent- entertainment if you know you do kind of turn your brain off from it. But that also does tie into the. the you know, who will license this? Who would re- license this? Uh, Japan did. They made a lot of money. South Korea did. No one cared. ADV did. It just got a VHS release. Um, in 2002, um, in the climate we have where there is a heightened awareness of problematic people or problematic movies or problematic aspects to movies i'm not going to use cancel culture because i think that phrase is idiotic um and and i i i i don't know if we're gonna i don't know if we are or maybe even if we should (laughs) see another video release of this um officially just because there is so much baggage um because how do you, as a home video label, say, hey, we got this movie that was made with slave labor under, you know, and, and these people that were put through these horrific things. And if you are that video label, I mean, who, who, who is going to buy it? You know, I don't know. I mean, it's... A, well, I mean, kaiju fans need something to put behind their Polgasari Marathon. <laughs> yeah, right. So. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, and I was, I was also going to say, um, maybe the people that are like, yeah, Polgasari in the MonsterVerse, let's go. Like, maybe slow down and think about what you're asking for. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm just saying it. it is a big pink elephant to deal with. And um, the company that may do it i don't think anyone will and it it would probably be poor business practice to put that out especially now in the age of twitter um but if someone ever did like i you have my i good luck well part of it is if you're licensing the movie how, how do you even 
attempt to do special features. <laughs> you, do you, you, yeah. you go with the, the line of, of, of the, uh, you know, <laughs> this was all made by volunteers. Yeah. There was no coercion. Yeah. Like. yeah but yeah, you got to get it from the, the, the owner is the Korean film studio. And, uh, and yeah, that is the Kim family. I, I don't know if Kim Jong-un is as hands-on or if he has someone else doing it, I don't know, but I mean, I, I don't know. I, I I don't know that anyone is going to feel that gutsy. And I don't know if I ran a label, I don't think I would want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. But I think that like the, the history of it, like, I feel like the, 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 the story that, that the, that brought the movie to life, as awful as it is, it's sort of worth preserving. For sure. Because it, yeah. it, and like that would be my argument to say, like, I think somebody should try to put it out because I think it's yeah. like that's an um, important story to tell. I get why maybe they would. Want yeah. To. And, and I, I, and I don't know, I don't know if it's a comparable situation, but if it is, I don't, uh, I don't know who. <laughs> Uh, this is going to sound strange, but I don't know who you would have to go through to put out Triumph of the Will. Um, but I do know that Synapse releasing, uh, did a, a special edition DVD for the purposes like Matt that you were saying. And, um, I don't know if anyone here listening is familiar with my old podcast. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Um, but, uh, Don May who runs Synapse, he actually lives around the Metro Detroit area. And, um, he's actually really good friends with, uh, Trev, uh, who our, our friend Trevor, who's on this podcast a lot. And who was my co-host on if it bleeds like Trev goes to Don's house all the time and just watches movies. But, um, we interviewed him uh, and, and asked him about that. We were like, because he said it was Synapse's biggest seller. And I was like, whoa, I, I, ooh, that's probably not good. And he was like, well, a lot of schools and libraries will get it. And I was like, okay. And he was like, but every now and then at a convention, like someone swings by our table and buys it. And I'm like, uh, yeah, maybe this person shouldn't be <laughs> buying this. But, I, but, but, but we asked Don, like, how did you, like, wh- basically, how were you, how, how were you, feeling okay to release this movie and he said um my partner jerry uh jerry is the other guy that runs synapse and synapse is only it's a two-person show it's don and jerry so eh, almost like tom and jerry um but that you know if you're ever like why is synapse take so long to do everything it's because it's literally two people in a tiny little office right outside the uh, detroit metro airport um, but he, but he's like, well, my, my partner, my, my business partner, Jerry is Jewish. And, you know, we, we taught, like, we were like, if this is a title we're going to release, like, he was like, I, I think Don was basically like, I have, this is something we could do. Would you be okay with it? And if so, how would you be okay with it? And, and he was like, the only way I can, I think morally we can do this is if we get a commentary track by like someone who's like survived the Holocaust basically. And that's what they did. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Shin and Che are both dead, but if, 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 uh, well, and, and like I said, I mean, I don't think triumph of the will is going 
you know, I don't think you're paying like Hitler's estate to get that. So that's why I said, I don't know if the situation would be entirely the same, but if someone were to license Pulgasari, I think having a really educational like commentary just about not only their story, but just like how awful that dictatorship is, I think that would probably cushion some of that blowback. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's a similar deal with like Funimation put out Momotaro's Sacred Sailors, which is a World War II propaganda piece that just so happens to also be the first anime movie ever made. <laughs> of course. Um, and, you know, there was allegedly some some coerced labor uh, involved with that as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you kind of have to address that this is very problematic as an element, but also that this has some historical yeah. uh, significance. And I think in this case, uh, Polgasari has a legacy, uh, whether whether we want to acknowledge <laughs> yeah, it or right. not like it's part of it is part of the culture you know and it, yeah and unfortunately <laughs> well i don't know it may be fortunately i don't know it, it is easily the most seen north korean movie you know there was that japanese release and once that came out right into the bootleg market it goes onto youtube it goes it is on Internet Archive. I mean, you can see it, but yeah, I, I think if you're going to do special features, that's going to be that's that's going to be the angle that you need to take. Yeah, I mean, my my pie in the sky is you know, if if we're using that an analogy with Momotaro Sacred Sailors, is well, maybe the government in North Korea changes and then <laughs> it's a different situation. Uh, maybe. Uh, I mean, I was going to say it, it's like this is all kind of you know, irrelevant to a large extent because, I mean, as, as my understanding is that right now it's like, you know, the, they don't even acknowledge having made this film because of the fact that yep. Shinseng Ong, you know, deflected, um, and everything. So, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to license this film anyway. Yep. And, and, you know, your best case scenario, like Kevin was just saying, is that you, you know, wait for a future where, um, you know, the North Korean, uh, you know, ruling party goes the way of the Nazis and, um, you know, essentially doesn't exist anymore except for weird stragglers on in Illinois or something. <laughs> you know, so, um, What's wild to think about is like, there's Pogasori toys yeah. So oh, those are those are like Well, well the marmot ones though. were like part of the big like marketing push for that Japanese theatrical release, but I, I think the uh Kevin uh the, the Mondo yep. ones are legally distinct because they have a uh an extra U in it, so it's Pulgasori. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, and would that hold up in probably court? Probably not, because isn't the, it, probably yeah not, isn't isn't the idea behind those infringement cases is like it has to it can't be confused with the other thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's I literally mean, stepped it, out of it, the movie. <laughs> imagine, imagine Kim Jong Un suing Mondo in any international court and winning. That would over be that. hilarious. I'm not gonna lie. I laugh. I'm not gonna um, lie. <laughs> That'd be a great next chapter in this story. That would be, yes. Uh, okay, so um, 
One more note that I want to make abundantly clear because I am tired of having to see this repeated online. Pulgasari was not a redressed Godzilla 1984 suit. So please stop saying that. It's irritating, and I don't like it. It is interesting, however, that in that interview from Film Out of Bounds, that Satsuma does say that the design and construction of the suit was left almost entirely up to uh, the people at Toho. I think he he mentions that um, uh, Shin had some uh, kind of general notes about what they were looking for, but he says, um, at least as far as uh, Satsuma uh, seems to know, everything else was left up to the people um, in-house at Toho. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> they were just like, you guys do do whatever. Um, which, which, again, might explain why the one from this movie is the best-looking version of this thing and not, you know, like, a, you know, like Grimace uh, Cinebite yeah, yeah. on meth. All right, so uh, unfortunately we have Galgameth to talk about. Uh, so let's go ahead and do our ratings for Pulgasari. Um, I guess I'll go first. Um, it's fine. Um, it, it, you know, it's not a favorite. The ending makes no sense, which we didn't mention. Um, so spoiler alert for Pulgasari. But the girl, like, puts herself in the bell. Um, we, we did mention that. You weren't listening. Oh. Did we mention that it makes no sense? It's fine. You can say it again. Oh, well, it, but, did we but, mention that uh, it, it that um, the a baby Pulgasari crawls out and turns into a beam of light that goes into her body? That part we did. Well, not that's mention. that's the part that doesn't make sense. Because the the uh, so you know she should just be ground up meat at this point because he like chewed her up. But yeah, so we see the bell broken open and her body in it, and then the baby Pulgasari like comes out of rocks. And, and like turns into a beam of light and then goes into the girl and then like i think i think we see like a tear fall from her face or something and then it ends yeah. and so i don't know i don't understand that at all anyway um the ending makes no sense and uh like i said it is just kind of a i don't know it, it's it's a it's a little bland in comparison to similar movies like Daimajine. so um you know, but that's being said, I was entertained. I enjoyed watching it again. I mean, who knows when I'm going to watch it again, though? So um, I give it a three. Um, and uh, I, I think three is a recommendable, like, okay, watch it. Like, go check it out and see what you think. So that's mine. I give it a three. Who's next? Not everybody all, yeah, all, all yeah. at once. Matt, you go. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm right there with you, Bird. I. Like, I actually did enjoy this. It has uh, numerous flaws. Uh, I also think I'm sort of blinded by the, the, all the weird, sordid history that goes with it. It just makes it more interesting to watch. Uh, but I'm also at a three. So. All right. Justin, you're the most fresh off of this movie. Um, are we doing out what, of five, three out yep. of five? I noticed you didn't do one of your your oh, yeah. you know, trademark little how many, things, Kyle. You yeah, how like... many uh, how many um, uh, directors in a tiny cell eating dirt and rice <laughs> <laughs> out of three? 
<laughs> out of five? Out of five, yes. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I, I think I want to be maybe a little bit more generous than you guys. I think three does sound fair. I kind of want to go um, three and a half. I'll, I'll say I'll say three and a half. Okay. Um, I'll let I'll let Kevin answer, and then I want to add one three more. Three and a half. I can dig it, Kevin. What about you? All right, I'll go with uh, three. I guess he's supposed to be like a red hot iron, so we've shown a red light on him now. Uh, out of five. <laughs> oh, we yeah, we didn't talk about. It. I do really like that scene where they try to burn Polgasari, and then he just turns red hot, and then jumps in the water and boils everybody to death. Um, I thought it was I thought it was important to mention from Fisher's book what uh, Kim Jong Il gave this movie, which is that he gave this movie. Um, he sent Shin. Uh, 50 deer freshly killed, 400 pheasants yet to be plucked, 200 smoked geese, and uh, four uh, and 200 boxes of oranges fresh from Japan. Jesus, so, how? Yeah, <laughs> who's going to eat all that? <laughs> um, apparently, Shin and his crew. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, have you seen Satsuma eat? <laughs> yeah, Satsuma will eat all of it. Um, uh. Okay, so uh, we mentioned Shin then moves to the U.S. Um, well, <laughs> moves, <laughs> is uh, protected <laughs> in the U.S., and he also tries to get back into filmmaking, where he makes a lot of money for Disney, um, and uh, he uh, writes a story for a Polgasari remake, uh, moved to, I guess, the uh, Victorian era, um, and, uh, this is, um, directed by Sean McNamara, who, uh, I, he actually does a lot of stuff, but it's mostly, like, kids TV, like, you know, Nickelodeon shows, CW shows, um, stuff like that. Um, he also plays the dad that dies in the first act. Um, anyway... Um, and Galgameth is, uh, so, um, Shin in the U.S. is going by the alias Simon Sheen. Um, unfortunately, a lot of, uh, Asian folks behind the scenes on American movies, uh, would do things like that. Um, and, uh, so, uh, the script based on, Shin's story is written by uh, Turi Meyer, Al Septine, and Michael Angeli. So I don't know why this thing has so many writers. Um, and uh, like I said, this is um, Sheen Communications. So that is the name of the company. Um, uh, that is uh, Shin's company. Um, this is the only movie that they would produce, um, and it is a Romanian co-production with America, actually. Um, so uh, it repeats a lot of the same story beats as uh, Polgasari. Um, however, it is even more kid-friendly, so like this is like super kiddie. Uh, and so uh, this one... Uh, we have uh, a teenage, 
I guess, prince, because he's the son of a king uh, named Davin. And um, uh, they are, uh, their kingdom has just given sovereignty to, I don't know, I don't remember their... (laughs) the name of these people um uh, to another uh, uh a neighboring group of people um which is a controversial decision and uh the king's hand named ll i don't know why that's his name um that's not like a name anyway um who is played by the dad <laughs> from monster squad um but doing like a bad accent um uh, he, he, uh, he protests this because he does not feel like, uh, he feels like their kingdom should rule over everybody. And, um, so he poisons the king, um, and the king on his deathbed has a little statue of, uh, Galgameth, which is like, you know, basically like the Pulgasari doll, only not made of like dirt. (laughs) Um, And so uh, he is killed. And then um, uh, uh, Davin is like uh, out of commission. And so LL, our villain, he rules over, he declares himself king and rules over the kingdom uh, by doing all kinds of evil things, including um, banning all dogs. So that's how you know he's a bad guy. Um, I'm not sure why he does this, um, but we do know he has a cat that he pets evilly. Anyway, um, so he's doing all these things and saying that it is the will of King Davin... Uh, meanwhile, Davin wakes up in, uh, in bed, uh, to see that the little doll has come to life in a very horrifyingly, uh, like, uh, cursed, uh, tiny little monster that looks like a weird mutation of, like, Minya and a Ninja Turtle, and, like, the baby from Dinosaurs, um, and, uh, the little Galgameth, uh, we are treated to, uh, a scene that lasts forever of him, um, uh, doing all kinds of unhinged hijinks, like, uh, like, um, punching a cat in the face, um, wrecking chandeliers, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, the kid is like, oh, you're, you eat metal? Because he finds a spoon in his bed for some reason with metal uh, bites taken out of it. And so, um, uh, eventually, um, uh, Davin wakes up and he's uh, on the run. And so he goes to this, like, third world village (laughs) this is that they just just liberated um and he he smears a bunch of dirt on his face and on the little galgamesh face and he's like we gotta fit in here which is a pretty shitty thing to say actually um uh because he's like yeah we have to look like unwashed hobos like everyone else around here um and so uh uh 
they're hiding out in this bar, and uh, the uh, the waitress uh, uh, he takes a liking to, and uh, he says he's like some other guy. You know, he's not King Davin because everyone hates him because he is being a dictator. And um, uh, the little Galgameth is dressed in like baby clothes or something. Anyway, uh, and and he's like, yeah, this is just my like deformed sister <laughs> or something. And so they they hide, and then uh, 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 LL's goons come, and they're looking, and they can't find him. And uh, you know, they think that the waitress and her friends are up to no good, and they know something. So um, in a, a scene taken from Polgasari, they're about to cut her head off. And uh, the baby, Pulgasari, instead of biting a guy's face off, he, like, bites the, the guy's axe. And for some reason, it's, like, done, like, in, it's, like, a CG augmented mouth on the monster that, like, bites into it. Um, and so uh, they take him in, and uh, uh, eventually um, uh, Galgameth keeps growing bigger, um, at one point, he does a strip tease uh, to some of the the, the bad guys, uh, which was like, I guess, him trying to tell them to take off their armor and clothes uh, so he could, like, eat it. Anyway, he keeps getting bigger. We're, we get another scene out of Polgasari where they try to kill him and, and by trapping him. This time they trap him in, like, this big building, and they pour, like, acid i think on him anyway it doesn't work and the but the building explodes and then uh galgameth um instead of just being like colored pink for a little bit uh you actually get a sequence where um he has like the burning godzilla effect where like he's like glowing like lava and uh it's actually pretty one of the cooler <laughs> uh moments in this thing um and then uh uh uh, when they find out that Davin is, in fact, King Davin, uh, their first instinct is to try to hang him, so maybe they are uncivilized barbarians after all. Um, anyway, they end up teaming up with uh, Galgameth, who uh, will help them crush the, uh, the evil dictatorship, and then Davin gets to become king, and uh, everyone lives happily ever after. But yeah, a lot of the main... Set pieces are lifted out of Palgasari. Um, the they even try to like demonstrate their fancy new weapon, which is uh, like cannons, um, which is like in Palgasari. That's like the big weapon that's meant to stop him. Um, you get a lot of those same beats, um, and uh, that's the movie. It's uh, it's very cringe. Um, <laughs> I, will, I will clarify. Bird has said twice that this is the Victorian era, and it's not oh. like it's it's the era that like Renaissance fairs take place <laughs> in. It, it, it's so it's like uh, yeah, it's like the uh, the medieval version of like westerns. How they just take they just take place in the old west. Don't ask when or where. <laughs> I was gonna say saying that it takes place in the Renaissance fair era doesn't help because if you've ever been to a renaissance fair that's any time between like the early middle ages to 
you know, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, I, I think that's a fair assessment. I'll let it stand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they have, you know, they, they have cannons, they have jousting, they have, uh, I don't know, other castles, I don't know, th- things along those lines that you would associate. Basically, if you were a child in the 90s, you saw lots of nebulously set period pieces, whether it was Xena or Dragonheart or blah, blah, blah. And it's in that oeuvre of kind of fantasy genre. Um, and uh, the suit actor for uh, Galgameth is uh, none other than Doug Jones. And I believe that this has uh, special effects by uh, Tony Gardner, right? Return of the Living Dead and The Blob and all that, all those. That's upsetting. <laughs> That's correct, though. Am I, am I lying? Kevin, I'm consulting your book. Uh- if it's in my book, that's what I looked <laughs> if up. If it's I in my book, it's definitely it. true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is in your book. He checked the, the wiki. Um, and then uh, the baby uh, Galgameth is... Um, uh, it's uh, someone that just died. Because Doug Jones, uh, who plays Galgameth, made like a post. Uh, Felix Sela, who played an Ewok. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I guess I'll kind of give my thoughts before handing the mic over. Uh, this was my first time seeing this. I have actually avoided watching this movie. Uh, in fact, around the, it was probably like around the time I was being like more of a kaiju completist, completionist or completist. I guess they're both kind of words. Um, and trying to watch everything, I. That's probably around the time I first heard of this, which was probably in, like, the early 2000s. And I even remember, like, going to a Blockbuster and, like, they had it. And I, I, and I just picked up the box and looked at it and was like, I'm trying to see everything, but, like, should I, should I rent this? And, the, and, I, and I, I very distinctly remember this. And I, I, I just kind of looked at the box cover, like, in shame and then put it down <laughs> and I, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And so all these years later, it's pretty much the movie I thought it would be. Like, it has a lot of the, the like, really dumb, like, 90s kids movie humor. Like, like the stuff you might see in the Three Ninjas. Um, and uh, the baby Galgameth bothers me. The middle, the mid-sized Galgameth bothers me because he has, like, a weird, like, penis-looking part of him that I don't understand. The full-size, full-grown Galgameth is pretty sweet. Uh, that's a pretty cool suit. The burning Galgameth I like. Um, the characters in this just irritated me. I hate that they call Galgameth Galgi. Um, there's just a lot of, like, really kiddie stuff that, like, just I hated. And, and, like, I have a kid now, so, like, I do see a lot of, like, kids' stuff, and, like, there's a lot of stuff where I'll be like, yeah, it's for kids, whatever. But like, this is kind of kids stuff that like, I just, I can't hang with the the, the greatest. 90s kid movies are peak kid cringe, I think. Yeah, they really are. Hey, Bird, you want to hear how I feel about the Giver? No, I don't. 
because this is where you're going to use my words against me, and I don't appreciate that. <laughs> um, but no, this movie, it's, it's actually kind of, it's a little long. It's like an hour and 40 minutes. It's very long. But it feels even longer. Yeah. Like, it, this felt like it just... <laughs> I thought I was watching it for three hours. It just felt like it wasn't going to end. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you, you have, like, cursed-looking baby Galgameth, uh, creepy animated CG mouth Galgameth. Like, he looks like he's in the Soundgarden Black Hole Sun music video. You got... Uh, it's just stuff like he biting people on the butt, because that's funny. Um, uh, just a lot of just stuff that... It, I don't know what Stephen Mack, the, the, the guy playing the villain, is doing. I, like, he, I think he's really good in Monster Squad. I don't know what happened, but he's terrible in this. Um, uh, but, I mean, aside from the cool suit towards the end and some good miniature work, um, I don't have much nice to say about this. I want it's, Kevin to go next to me as because... a rebuttal. It's got this whole thing with the the whole idea of Pulgasari is you've got to overthrow the monarchy, and the whole idea of Galgameth is you've got to restore the monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of the whole. That's the, what was I saying? It's a very flexible myth. You know. Yeah, and well, and the whole thing with the the monster becoming a villain at the end is completely. Yep. Thrown out the yeah, window with this. Yeah. 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 Pulgasari uh, is already like pretty kid friendly movie, but this, yeah, this is like, this is like just sands all the edges off of it completely. <laughs> it, it is interesting. The things that you can tell that they're trying to make it palatable to a, to a Western audience. And that, that goes along with, you know, really playing up like the, the, the teen romance angle, which, I mean, there's a little bit of that in the original, but I mean, romance in, in North Korean movies was, you know, it, it, it should be mostly your romance with the state. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's it's it feels like there's a lot of kind of cliches uh, that you would expect from that era of filmmaking. And if you're into that era of filmmaking, then. I can definitely see why you might uh, enjoy it. There's there's a little bit of a like, okay, I can kind of uh, get the the feeling of like, okay, if I was however old I was when I saw Prehysteria or whatever, maybe this That's would be a, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And this has that because Prehysteria was like when Charles Band was like. Do it. He was like trying to diversify. Like that's when he he made like a couple kaiju movies with what was it, Monster Island entertainment or whatever <laughs> and and so yeah i think moonbeam is uh he established to make like kids movies and yeah prehysteria is probably the most popular one and this definitely has that like straight to video like kids movie quality that those movies had like if if this movie opened with charles band presents i'd be like oh that makes sense <laughs> um well do you guys remember um dragon world did any of you ever see that? It was one. I'm pretty sure it was one of those Charles Band. Yeah, Full Moon Entertainment, Moonbeam Entertainment from 1994. Is the uh, the puppet or the the suit for Galgameth 
in uh, reminds me of <laughs> that's in Dragon World. So it actually looks like Dragon World's on Tubi. Oh, so there you if go. You guys have never seen it. I, I at least have very fond memories of it. It might be awful now. <laughs> I don't know. I watched this when I was like six. Um, so. And there's weird, like, just stuff that makes no sense. Like, uh, there's the part, like, LL is going, like, he takes Davin onto a boat to, I guess, kill him. And, like, uh, in this, they say Galgameth can only be killed by the thing that brings him to life. And since the doll in this, instead of blood that brought him to life, um, it's the kid, he cries over it, and the tears bring him to life. Um, the bad guys are like, oh, that means salt water will kill him. So, like, he, his plan is to use Davin to lure Galgameth into the ocean, and the salt water will kill him. And so uh, Galgameth is, like, dying. I don't know, he's like, I don't know what happens to him in salt water. He melts, I don't know, who knows. Um, and, like, so he can't reach the boat, so to save Davin, he like absorbs lightning and like shoots it at the boat and then he dies and it's like okay like like king Kong. yeah i don't yeah <laughs> yeah it makes no sense there's no established it's not established anywhere that he has any connection to lightning maybe because he's like maybe he has like metallic properties i don't know um yeah that sequence by the way where Ga- where galgi as bird loves to, to call him <laughs> Uh, is actually kind of horrifying for the. It's like the one thing in here that like the monster just seems like he is in complete and total agony, and it was is a bit upsetting. Well, for kids let's movie. just give credit to Doug Jones because Doug Jones is awesome. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and so, of course, like I said, it's everything with the edges sanded off. So, of course, he doesn't actually die. He turns back into the little statue. And they find it just, like, on the beach. And then, like, uh, Davin gets in a sword fight and kills the bad guy. And then, um, I don't know, everyone's happy and he's the king and, like, the end. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that's Galgameth. Um, it's, uh, it's something. Um, does anyone have any further thoughts on this abomination? <laughs> I think it's rating time. If if you're like, hey, this podcast's been going for over three hours, that's how we all felt while watching yes. it. Yes. However long the fi- this final the final version of this podcast is, it will in minutes it will be longer than Galgameth, but in uh, just the passage of time, it will be much shorter. Um, <laughs> so, uh, how many, um, <clears throat> strip teasing, cat punching, iron eating assholes <laughs> do you give this out of five? I. I guess I'll go first. Uh, I looked at my letterbox and I gave it a two, which is probably pretty generous. I do think what special effects work is present uh, ends up being pretty decent. And I tried to put myself in the mind of like, well, this is obviously a kid movie. And so I was feeling generous. But I will say Landon 
gave up on it about 20 minutes. <laughs> so like maybe maybe you should read it. Missing his target audience. Uh, yeah, I am also going with a two. I mean, and honestly, if you chopped out like, if if this was like eighty minutes or something, it would probably yeah, be a pretty decent kids movie. But it's too boring to keep kids' attention, and it's too bad <laughs> for an, adults to enjoy it. So instead, it's just kind of like this nothing burger, but. Uh, I mean, it, it just, I don't know why it's, it's as long as it is. And, um, I, yeah, I mean, everything from the lame humor to just the sheer glacial experience of watching it. Um, I'm going to give it a two. Uh, I like the final form of Galgameth and the burning Galgameth. And I like the, the, the ending, I guess, siege on, you know, the, the bad guy's castle, is pretty fun, um, but it's not enough to save this thing. Um, it's um, it's a two, and uh, like thirteen year old me or whatever did the right thing by n- not renting it. Um, Justin, you were mercifully spared this, um, so uh, you've gotten away this time. Um, Kevin, where are you? I will. I will take satisfaction <laughs> in just knowing that. Kyle is sitting around going, they don't know about burning Galgameth. <laughs> yeah, you don't know about burning Galgameth. Uh, all right, Kevin, um, where where are you on this this thing? So so normally, if y'all are both something's a two, I'm the the voice of dissent. And guess what? I'm giving this a whopping two uh, <laughs> uh, out of out of five. Taking the baby dinosaur from Disney's dinosaurs and putting it in a dress and passing it off as your deformed sister while you hide in an apple barrel. Yeah, the the, the bonkersness of this movie is probably making it sound a lot less boring than it actually is, but I promise you, the movie isn't as interesting as we might make it sound. Um, all right, people. Well, um, unfortunately, uh, Shin passed away in, what, 2005? I want to say 2005, um, and uh, Che passed away in 2018, um, so uh, yeah, I mean, um, unfortunately, they're not still around to tell their version of the story. Uh, the one thing I said I wanted, I, that I was going to save for the end, um, so obviously, probably especially in South Korea... There's a lot of people that doubted uh, Shin's story, but I think uh, we should go around the room. Um, okay, he died in 2006, so I wasn't too too far off. Um, but let's go around the room and, um, I guess, give our opinions. Do we think that uh, he was telling the truth, or what, did he go? Do you think he went to North Korea willingly, and I don't know, later lied about it, whatever? <laughs> um, uh, who wants to go first? I'll I'll say that um, the argument that he went willingly has a couple of, of weird ripples. You know, first of all, uh, North Korea has a long track record of abducting yeah. people or stuff. You know, uh, secondly, 
it's not just him. It's also his ex-wife. Now, did both of them at the same time just decide to abandon their existing families? And uh, then she went up a year ahead of time and he wandered over uh, after that. Like, that also doesn't make any sense. Um, so, and, and you know, then there's the fact that they have a, a tape of, of Kim saying what he did. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, it, that tape, by the way, was verified by like Secret Service agents as being legitimate. So it's not like they produced a tape and, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I, I think, it, yeah, I, I, and and you know, there, there are the people that are like, oh, but they, they, you know, they said that they were happy in North Korea while they were there under duress. Is like, oh, okay, well, they, what were their options? They, they had to, and like, oh, well. They were convincing. It's like, well... They had to... Be, the, being convincing is the only way they were able to get the hell out. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of them was an award-winning actress. Yeah. So. And like, it's like I said earlier. That's exactly what I would do, especially if, like, my first attempt to leave didn't work. I would be like, okay, I need to just cooperate and sound as, like, full throttle on board as I can because I need to earn the trust before I can escape. Um, and, yeah... It's, it's, Anyone who's had a shitty boss understands that situation. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I guess I'll say my... I, I, You took a lot of the words right out of my mouth. It doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, that uh, Shonair guy, he seems to be one of the doubters. And um, I guess a Japanese critic that knew Shin had claimed that Shin told him that he like was going to go there to make movies and... I don't know. Maybe he did say that, and maybe, maybe if Kim Jong Il just asked nicely, things would have come could could have gone a lot differently. But I don't think that's. It could have been easy for him to speculate about such a thing when he was making films in South Korea. He was originally from the northern part of Korea before it yeah. split. Um, but you know, it, it even if he said something like that, that's not necessarily. Uh, something to yeah, take yeah, and that's a big if. Um, uh, you know, and, and I don't know. I, I it just doesn't make sense. I mean, the the thing that most of the those people those, uh, cling to is the fact that he was given like unlimited budgets and a lot of creative freedom and a lot of things that he had lost from his previous career. But that still makes like his escape make no sense. Like, why would, he, why would he, okay, why would he leave then if he was so happy doing it, you know? And, and you know, the, all the stuff with, you know, his uh, ex-wife's kidnapping. I mean, like, the person that, like, orchestrated her kidnapping, like, they verified the identity of that person. And, like, what happened? You know, FBI, Secret Service did. Like, so, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to make much sense to me and uh i mean if if you are gonna do this <laughs> there's probably ways that don't involve such a crazy story um i know i was i was uh <clears throat> kind of giving kyle a hard time about this before we started recording i don't actually legitimately think that um shin was was not kidnapped or, or coerced into uh to filmmaking um, I, I think just to give a, a little bit more perspective on, on, you know, so, uh, if you read, um, 
shown here's uh, chapter from Film Out of Bounds and his interview with Satsuma. Yeah, he really does seem to be skeptical of the idea that uh, Shin was actually abducted. He puts kidnapped in air quotes and um, actually ends his, his essay on the history of North Korea, Korean film um, <clears throat> kind of almost sort of opining that he thinks that like Shin made a mistake by like, you know, leaving North Korea and coming to Hollywood and that he should have stayed and, you know, helped to further develop their, their film industry perhaps. And he does mention, he says um, what Kyle was alluding to. Um, he writes a Japanese film critic an early friend of Shin Seng Ok, Tetsuo Nishida tells us in his book, Fictional Image, that Shin Seng Ok told him at various times before disappearing from Hong Kong that he had gotten an offer from North Korea to make movies there freely and that he had considered going there voluntarily. Um, which, I mean, I suppose one way you could read that is, oh, this guy was talking about, hey, I'm getting offers from the North Korean government to come make movies for them. And I'm kind of considering it since my career is, you know, in the shitter at the moment in South Korea. Um, it's also potentially evidence that it's like, well, if he decided not to do yeah, that, that might've been then, what triggered them. Then into, then that's yep. what they were like, okay, well we asked nicely <laughs> and this wasn't really a thing where you could say, yeah, no. we, we weren't asking. We were, at, we, we were telling you very nicely yeah. to come here. So you, your 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 options for answering those requests was yes or absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, Matt, what do you think? Is this guy a lying pos, or did he actually <laughs> did he actually suffer a lot of? No, I mean, I, I think I think he suffered. I think he was kidnapped. Uh, I the the lovers in the despot the um, the documentary kind of validates a lot of facts by actual you know secret service agents who yeah were and, and they actually on, like, and, yeah and they, and they play a lot of the actual audio recordings and, yeah yeah so like i i think beyond that like i don't know what the details were of his captivity but everything up to that point definitely seems uh legitimately to be to be true yeah um and then obviously they they did leave like they they escaped so like i don't know how you think they did that and they weren't suffering um all right, so that is Pulgasari and Galgameth and a lot of history uh, and yeah. uh, a lot of information. Um, but I think we, I think we, we got through it, and um, uh, both movies are uh, not available easily in official capacity, but they're both on YouTube. Um, and internet archive. Uh, so, I mean, I, I would say if you can put aside, um, the fact that Polgasari was made, uh, with slave labor, um, you can put aside your basic humanity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, Hey, I'm not getting rid of my Rosemary's baby DVD, you know? So look, I'll watch, I'll watch Polgasari. Okay. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yes, uh, if you can put aside, uh, um, uh, those, those, uh, those circumstances, um, it's an enjoyable enough movie for the kaiju fans to check out, um, anyone that's a casual fan or 
not too into the genre, I, you know, you'll be fine skipping it. Uh, Galgameth, I mean, I, I, if you, look, you heard what we said. If you want, it's there. Um, all right, gang, so uh, that was a lot of information, and uh, we're good to go. The Lovers in the Despot is streaming. Paul Fisher's uh, book, Kim Jong-il Productions, is out there. There's a ton of resources if you want to know more. Like I said, we gave you the short version. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Justin, Kevin, thank you for joining us. Um, uh, but Thank you for having me yep, back. Always a pleasure. Let's get out of here. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.